Hi there, I'm Daisy Torme. You might not have seen me, but you've certainly heard me from everything from Westworld to Superman and Lois to the good old days of the West Wing and ER and House of Cards and goodness knows what else, How to Train Your Dragon. I'm here with Craig. We're going to do a little Kneel Before Pod. Here we go. Kneel Before Blog presents Kneel Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that survived the destruction of a dying planet only to move to another dying planet. We're really good at this. I'm your host, Craig, and we're here to talk about the first season of Superman and Lois, the latest CW Arrowverse. Maybe not Arrowverse, we'll talk about it. Show. So, talking to me about Superman and Lois, we've got Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hello, and welcome to New Krypton, Old Krypton, Dead Krypton, some. Krypton. Krypton adjacent. I have worn my pants on the outside of my trousers in honour of the special occasion. That's dedication. Superman doesn't even do that. Well, he should. Well, he does in one episode, but we'll get to that. Two episodes, ten, but we'll get to that. We'll get to a lot of things. But before we get into anything, why don't we just go over what we thought of the season without spoiling, as is the custom. So... Since you're not the host, why don't you start us off? I'll keep it short and sweet. I was really impressed by this first season. It's tonally different from what I expected from an Arrowverse and CW show. Tonally, visually, it just seems apart from the others and really impressed and surprised me. I'd agree. I loved the show. I was always going to... I don't know if I was always going to enjoy it, but I was always going to watch it because it's an Arrowverse show and it's Superman. So therefore, it's got me just by being what it is. But yeah, I really liked it. I really liked how it built its stories around different pillars and how it juggled so many things mostly very well. There are some bits that it falters that we'll talk about. But for the most part, I think it handles the disparate elements that it's stitching together really well. And... I think I said it almost every week in reviews. It baffles me that they're able to pull this off week on week because these things should not be combining naturally, but they've found a way to do it. And they've taken the Superman character, the Clark Kent character, and pushed them way, way forward from what we've ever seen in live action before. It gives us a fresh take on his story, which I really liked. So, yeah, there's plenty to discuss about this show, and I think it's rich and interesting and a real breath of fresh air in a lot of ways without spoiling it that's about as detailed as i can be there you go that's the spoiler free thoughts everyone that's as close as you can get that's it so let's just move into spoilers then i do have an artificial intelligence that can take us into the spoiler free section with a bespoke quote the ai was never named so ai just take us into the spoiler section captain luthor i'm ready to do kneel before pod there you go. How about that? Oh, that's snazzy. That's so cool. I interviewed the voice of the AI in this show, Daisy Tormey, and she was lovely. And she recorded that for me in the style of the AI. So cool for that. She normally gets paid for that sort of thing, but she just did it for me gratis. So thank you. Thank you, Daisy Tormey, if you're listening. Thank you, Daisy. And it's a very interesting interview. If you get the chance to have a listen, it should have been in your podcast feed already. So if you've not listened, go back and have a little listen to it because it's very interesting. I listened to it on the bus home the other day. Good little insight into voice acting and little 
tidbits of information that I didn't know and I found pretty interesting and I know from the interview you definitely did so well worth checking out voice matching as well which is something I wasn't aware of as a process it's all in there have a listen link in the show notes or it's in the same feed that you're using to listen to this if you're listening through an app so give it a listen she's lovely and it was a good chat I really enjoyed it and she was gracious enough to give up her time and come on and record in the style of an artificial intelligence nothing but time for that woman thank you Daisy Anyway, that's besides the point. Well, it's kind of on point, but it's besides the point. Let's just start with the characters and we'll feed in with all the other stuff that's on the agenda that I formulated. So let's go with our lead first. Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman. As I alluded to in the spoiler-free section, we're picking up at a point in Clark's life that we've never really seen before in live action. In the comics you will have in other places maybe, but not in this capacity, not in live action. It's a discussion we've always had about Superman stories. They just reboot them all the time. And it's ridiculous that we've had so many Superman films. Well, they're not that many really, but all we've really dealt with is Zod and Lex Luthor. We've never done Brainiac or anything like that. We did Doomsday, I suppose, kind of in the Hmm. Batman v Superman movie and the Justice League dealt with Steppenwolf and Darkseid. But there's a distinct lack of variety to Superman stories in cinema. And that's a real shame. When you consider how iconic the character is, he is the superhero. You think of superheroes and three or four names will be rattled off by most people and Superman will be one of them. So it's bizarre that we've never really had much progression in that way. But this takes us beyond that and we're at a point where he's a husband, he's a father, he's dealing with the issues that surround that and dealing with adjusting to, well not adjusting to, he's adjusting to being a different sort of father throughout this show. But he's had these kids for 13 years, 14 years, however old they're supposed to be. I think they're around 14, 15. From the beginning that's interesting to take him to that point and give us that aspect of him that we've never seen before. I can't disagree with you on that. I found it really interesting as well. It's exactly what you say. It's a side of Clark Kent that we've not seen. It's a side of Superman that we've not seen. Because, like you say, they cut him off at a point. Even when they did the Lewis and Clark show way back, they didn't push the character that far on. He wasn't a parent at that point. They didn't do anything, move back to Smallville or deal with any issues like that. It was dealing with Lex Luthor, the usual. It was that kind of stuff that they had going on. It wasn't family (laughs) drama to an extent where you got a lot more of that in this. And I'm sure in discussions that we've had outside of the podcast, these discussions do sometimes happen, is a lot of the stuff that was interesting about Clark in this show was not really his Superman stuff. It was the family stuff. It was the combination of the two and how you deal with that, especially towards the beginning of the season where his identity is a secret from his sons. That became unmanageable at a point and they had to tell and they had to let them in on the secret and that was just really interesting to watch. It's those kind of scenes that we have not got to see before. I really liked how they set up the dynamic at the beginning. The first episode is them getting out of the metropolis life. So you see the Daily Planet, Clark gets fired. He's probably up for the chopping block of redundancy because never there, to be fair. He's just (laughs) always zipping off and no one knows why. It's like, this guy just doesn't do that much work. So let's get rid of him. We keep Lois because she's good at her job and whatever. But they are living in a apartment in Metropolis And when Clark flies home, he walks in the door. His sons don't really have much to say to him. Lois is there filling him in on what's happened since he's left. It's when Jordan is playing Mortal Kombat 
or the Mortal Kombat DC crossover game or whatever it is that has Superman as a character, he's not playing as Superman. So it suggests that there's no connection there. He's not really that impressed by Superman. And it's that idea of Clark being an absentee father because he's always off being Superman. So the twins have a distance from him early on because they don't understand why he's never around but they've sort of adapted to him never being around and adapting to that has created this distance. I really like that setup. I like that initial part about how their metropolis life was unsustainable in a way because Clark was never going to have that close connection to his sons because of what he does as Superman. I didn't think of it like that, actually. The fact that Metropolis and them being out and busy and also him being out and busy would lead to more of a disconnection than Smallville would, in a way. It's really true, actually. You do see the family come closer from the breaking of that secret. The fact that they're no longer having to disguise why their father's been away, why he missed that birthday party or didn't take them on that trip that they were supposed to go on or was away for a couple of days dealing with something. It was like he was off saving the world. That's why he wasn't at this event. He would go back with hindsight and look through all the missed birthday parties or missed occasions and go, oh, so that's why that happened. It would be that kind of understanding as well as a little bit of the hang on, you've kept us a secret and you've never told us. But you would also click with the, oh, right, I realise why you weren't there for this, that or the other. And it's a good riff on the classic secret identity trope, the idea that it affects the relationships that they forge. It's not really a case in Superman comics as much because DC never went into that drama. But if you look into early Spider-Man stuff or even recent Spider-Man stuff, I suppose, Peter Parker's unreliable because he's never around. He always misses stuff because he has that higher responsibility that he holds himself to and he's willing to let his friends or family be mad at him if it means saving lives. Mm. You can extrapolate that from what Clark's doing here, at least early on. And Lois is the one covering for him because the kids aren't stupid. So they'll have an inkling that something further is going on, but I guess they've gotten to the point where they've really stopped caring about it. It's a bit where Clark walks into both his son's rooms and neither of them stop what they're doing. (laughs) Neither of them care. That really stands out. But he's trying to connect to them, but he's also doing it on a part-time basis. And that's an arc that he needs to follow over the series is to actually be more present in their lives, to be more supportive. And again, he's not done it consciously. It's an accidental thing. It's because of his responsibility as Superman. But it's this idea of the contrast between Superman as this flawless figure that society sees as the man of tomorrow, perfection. And then at home, he's kind of a mess. Clark Kent is unaware of how to live his life. He's not got it all figured out. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's as fallible as the rest of us, but it's the idea that Superman has to be more than that. He has to be bigger than life. He has to be this beacon of hope and positivity that people can aspire to, whereas Clark Kent is just not that. So that's a really interesting thing. I wish they'd done a bit more with doubting his ability to be that for the world, but I guess he's been Superman for long enough that... He's got that bit down. He knows how to say the right things to the public, but keep that distance. But in his family life, he's a bit of a mess. Well, it's that thing of as Superman, he's able to rush in, save the day, get out of Dodge, go away. Whereas when it's family life, if you rush in and you maybe don't fully complete the task, you can't just disappear off afterwards. The family are still going to be sitting there at the end. And that's kind of the way that at first he's dealing with it. He'll come in, he'll try and solve an issue quickly by saying a thing or banning them from doing a thing or telling them off, and then thinks, well, that's that done. And it's like, no, it's not done. You now deal with the fallout and the consequences. That's the way it works. Where 
Lois has got that down because she's dealt with the boys for all that time. He's not quite got that and doesn't quite understand. And he does get closer there towards the end as well. Yeah, he learns as he's going. And I do like the humanisation of Clark Kent throughout the show. And there's a few things that we'll definitely talk about that I really enjoyed that they did with him. And it's the idea of the person behind the Superman image has to be incorruptible. But behind it, he's just a man and he's a very human person. And I like that they make him flawed in that way without compromising him as well. He's not an idiot. He just doesn't have all the answers. But both as a father and as Superman, he has to present the appearance of someone that has all the answers and he just can't do it, at least in the aspect of fatherhood. I love that. I really liked how they played with that. Definitely. So early on in the show, they, early on in the first episode, the Metropolis stuff lasts maybe 10 minutes. Early on in the show, they go to Smallville because of a funeral. Clark's mother, Earth mother, Martha, dies. And I said in my review of the first episode that I had a very similar experience when I found out my mother died. The phone rings It's their phone, but it's not them on the other end. It's someone delivering the bad news. And I thought that was really affecting. And Tyler Hecklin's performance as he realised what it was, was excellent. Then he just gets there as quickly as he can, which for him is two seconds later. And he has to deal with that loss early on. And it really shakes up his life because he's just been fired as well. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot impacting him in that moment. And I really liked how that transition came about. The idea of my life has completely changed So I need to get back to the fundamentals and figure things out all over again. Again, Clark Kent's a bit of a mess. No, it's true. When life knocks you, it'll knock you with two or three things at once. And with Clark, that comes as just the whammy of him losing his job, losing his mum at the same time with that distance. And again, it's that thing of, I should have spent more time with him or I should have known more of what was going on. I should have known that she was in trouble. When he goes back and he finds out what his mum's been up to and how she's been helping everyone out and all the different things that's been going on. He has that sudden feeling of, I should have been involved in their life more. I should have been visiting more often. I should have been speaking to them more. It's all very, very human. It's the very true emotions that he's going through of that loss, that fact, oh, I'm not going to get the phone call from them again. I'm not going to be able to speak to them or ask their advice again. And that happens twice in this season, really, for Clark. So it's a strong piece and obviously it acts as one of the motivators and one of the reasons that they end up in Smallville and pushes it on. It seems natural that they would go to Smallville at some point to raise the kids, but it brings that on in quite a natural way, that want to return home, that want to return back to that community that he was so fond of and was so supportive of him before. It just made sense that that's what that character would want especially after going for them. There was a few factors that contributed to that decision as well. The most major one being Jordan powers manifesting. They make the decision that Smallville is probably the best place for them for that reason. But there's also the thing about there's a bit of a mess in this town that they need to be involved in. The mention of the second mortgage on the farm that Martha took out that they had no idea about, as you said, it's the, I should have been more conscious of what she was doing. Hmm. She was giving money to people to help keep the town running the way it was and the idea of Smallville is this depressed small town that is dying and it's convenient they moved to Smallville at that point because otherwise the Kryptonian invasion might have gone ahead without a hitch it's plot convenience isn't it but <laughs> can you imagine this 
what if Superman had never moved back to Smallville and Superman and Lois if they were to do the what if of the Arrowverse? You know, oh yeah, the Kryptonians took over and no one noticed until it was too late and that was the end of it. <laughs> so there's that convenience, I guess. But you sort of forget about it because the emotional motivation is so rich and works so well and it makes sense that they would do that for that reason. And it's very strange, the fact that, it's, okay, we're just going to make this decision on your behalf, kids. We're moving you out of this place that you're comfortable in at least in Jonathan's case Jordan I guess was a bit of an introvert who could live anywhere and obviously he connects with Sarah very quickly so he's motivated to want to live in Smallville because of her but Jonathan has a life out there he's on the football team he has a girlfriend he's got friends he's got this set up and it's a big adjustment for him moving so the fact that the parents make that unilateral decision without really involving them. That's typical of what happens with families, isn't it? Where it's, if you're young enough, it's, we're doing this and you have to come because you're not old enough to not come. If you don't like it, tough. It's that tough love approach, I suppose. But they do try and be understanding as parents. They try to be open with the kids, at least once they finally tell the secret of what Clark is and who Clark is, which they managed to keep for 13 years, 14 years somehow. It's almost as if Clark wasn't around for a huge period of that time in real life. I guess the kids have never met Superman, so they would never see him up close enough to make that connection. Yeah, uh, mum, you hang out with Superman all the time. How come we've never got to meet Superman? <laughs> that seems really unfair. Yeah. I imagine that conversation has happened at some point. <laughs> Can you get me Superman's autograph? Because mum sees Superman all the time. Well, they just don't seem to be that impressed, but or certainly Jordan didn't at the beginning. He... As I say, it was playing as one of the Mortal Kombat characters instead of as Superman. But can you imagine living in a world where you're just not impressed by Superman? Ah, oh, yeah, whatever. Flying alien saving everyone's lives. Who cares? <laughs> but I suppose if it's part of your landscape, I mean, we look at it as, isn't it this wonderful thing? But in that particular world, there's lots of flying around superheroes and stuff. I mean, I still think you'd be impressed by Superman. He is amongst the god tier of superheroes, isn't he? So... You should be impressed with Superman, even in that particular world. Plus, he's one of the first ones, supposed to be one of the first ones. We don't know what the whole setup is post-crisis, or we don't actually know if this is actually set in the Arrowverse, because they've not explicitly confirmed it. But he's certainly around before Supergirl. And then Supergirl is around around the same time as The Flash. So you have to imagine that Superman is early, and then The Flash, and Supergirl, and Green Arrow, and Batman appear later. Maybe Batman's a contemporary of Superman, I guess, more or less. We don't know, but there is a strong suggestion that Batman was active for a few years before Batwoman came along, and then was missing for a few years before Batwoman came along, so probably just them two early on, by and large. We really need a post-crisis timeline. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get one, because it is whatever (laughs) they decide it happened to be at that time. We've discussed it here, we've kind of touched on it, but we've not fully gone into it but they seem to go at pains to not quite declare if this is on the same earth as say supergirl for example and everything else or not they do a lot of arm twisting and sentence wriggling to not quite declare if they're part of the same thing or not like i said before tonally the show is very different visually it's different than the others and that makes it stand out a bit I don't know whether it's first season things, whether like we want the first season to stand pretty much on its own, apart from 
a random appearance by John Diggle. <laughs> um, <laughs> a token appearance by John Diggle, which neither confirms nor denies previous involvement with the family. I really struggled to try and find the bits where it was like, oh, this confirms that it is 100% part of the same thing, because lots of what they say hints at there not being a Supergirl, or there not being another active Kryptonian flying about and saving people because the way this plot is and i don't know if you want to touch on that later on rather than just now but i've just kind of dropped it in in this bit (laughs) as good a time as any to talk about it the plot of this season is very similar to the first season of supergirl on a high level anyway it's the kryptonians are invading and they have a plan and they want to do something so it's it's happened before assuming that the post-crisis world still has those events play out in kind of the same way. But yeah, Kara is never mentioned. There's a point where there's a very real possibility that Superman might turn on them and Lois phones not Kara to come and help. (laughs) I did read somewhere, and I don't know how true this is, and I don't know where I read it, so take it with a pinch of salt, because we don't know how Supergirl ends. But it has been suggested that this season takes place after the final season of Supergirl, which means that possibly something happens in the final season of Supergirl that means she just isn't around anymore. So maybe her show ends with her leaving to do something else, go somewhere else, live somewhere Mm. else. So she's not available and they know that and that's why they're not really talking about her. We don't know because, again, they don't give us a context. And to be fair, it's okay because it lets the show stand on its own, especially in its first season, but it's very strange that it is a spin-off of Supergirl, effectively, and it doesn't mention it, which is even more hilarious because... Supergirl, when it started, felt like a spin-off to a Superman show that never existed. So it's funny that we've got the <laughs> spin-off to the thing that feels like a spin-off that is focusing on the character that the non-spin-off spins out of. It's really weird in the way I've structured it, in the way that it's all worked out, but it's, it's quite fun. You're right. It could be something to do with the timing and them not wanting to throw massive spoiler bombs for the end of Supergirl into a different show that's airing before, because it would steal some of the impact potentially of the other show but then you think well if you've had to delay one then potentially delay the other to match i don't know i I get that there was probably pressure to get something released but it just seems very odd to the extent that they had to do so much ringing to make sure that they just didn't mention anything especially when made such a huge point of a huge event a massive crossover event to end all crossover events where they go, we're mashing everything together. And then they go pains at this to, we're not going to involve anyone else in any of what's going on right now. Even the people that it would definitely call for at this time. (laughs) Yeah. We have got John Diggle in a very non-committal mode delivering a thing, a gizmo, a what's it in this particular episode, but that's it. That's all we've got. It seemed very odd. And it's just because of the tone of the show itself. Like you say, the way it's set up, even the aspect ratio is different from the other shows. It's almost like this is different. The way we're doing this is different. And we're diverging in that particular way. I'm fine with that. And like you say, previously Supergirl did it. Stood on its own for its first season before it got through any crossover madness. Even to the point where... I think the first season of Supergirl, it was lots of text messages that were going back and forward, wasn't it? Yeah, they were instant messaging. Yeah. Oh, Clark, you just missed him. (laughs) He was just on the phone just now. And he appeared three times. In the first episode, he was obscured by the sun. The second time he appeared, it was clear it was him. But again, you don't see his face. He gets in the way of a blast. And then the third appearance, he gets 
brainwashed, so can't help. So they did those ridiculous references just mm. to point out that he's out there. So they did go out of their way to explain why he's not involved in a way. And then after that, it just became a non-issue. But in this, yeah, no mention of Kara at all for some reason. Yeah. Like you say, we'll possibly find out in the Supergirl finale and then that'll feed into the second season of this. And you mentioned the aspect ratio. Batwoman, I think, is in a similar ratio or it's certainly in a different ratio to the other shows. It's not quite letterboxed, but it has the very small bars at the top and bottom of the screen, similar to this. I don't know enough about what ratios what to know if they're the same one, but it is a visually different show in that aspect, Hmm. not so much in any other. But this one, yeah, very different visually. Something that struck me about this show is the camera angles that they've done, they've got a kind of filtering on it. It's not that bright, glossy CW tone that they put on the other shows. I think The Flash, for example, and Legends are a lot visually brighter than Smallville is or Batwoman, and I suppose Arrow was as well because of their operating mainly at night, so it is mainly darker. But Smallville itself seems to have a filter or something on it. And like I say, the camera angles that have been chosen throughout have been quite interesting. There were some very, especially in the early, the first two episodes, there was a lot of interesting shots. One that I keep going on about because it's the one that keeps springing to mind is I think there was someone driving away from the Kent farmhouse. And instead of just sort of doing a wide shot of a car disappearing off down the driveway, they had a camera mounted to the side of the car as it bounced along the gravel track away from the farm with a sort of sunset in the background. It was very cinematic. And it was the kind of Mm. thing that was like, wow, this is on one of the CW shows? This doesn't seem (laughs) right. This seems more like something that HBO or someone else would do. This doesn't seem like a CW shot because normally it would be, we can't go too far in this wide shot because then you'll see the fact that it isn't really a farm. It's on a back lot. (laughs) There's a bit of green screen to the side of the car here. It would sort of highlight everything that was wrong where instead it was like, no, look, we've got this big farmhouse set that we are using for this. We can do this big wide shot. We've waited until the right moment of natural light to film this and done it in a really cinematic way okay maybe it's first season money maybe it's pilot money that's getting splashed at the screen at that point with these shows they do normally have a big first season but there was stuff like that even in the finale there's a shot of john irons when the suit runs out of battery and he's in orbit and he's about to come crashing down to earth with the silhouette of the sun and the earth and a bit of lens flare over it as he's kind of silhouetted falling backwards towards Earth. An incredible looking shot. It looks absolutely fantastic. And you go, this is in one of these CW shows. And I know I'm sounding really condescending about the rest of the CW shows, but (laughs) up your game, rest of the CW shows, the bar has been lifted. (laughs) They are doing shots like this on your network now. You've got to lift to be with these other shows because I'm going to start comparing you. I'm really sorry. But it's happened. Someone's went out and done some really inventive stuff here. And it looked amazing. And I'm like, wow. So that's one of the reasons that I think it's been different for me and it sort of stood apart, not just from the fact that it almost seems like it's another Earth, but the fact that the show itself has been so dramatically different in the way it's been produced, maybe with the people that they've had on board or the directors they've had working on it. I've not researched enough to find out if there's a lot of crossover there. Well, there's definitely crossover with the directors because here's another self-plug. I interviewed a director who directed one episode of this, an episode of Flash, and an episode of Legends all over this 
current season. So there was certainly crossover in that respect. And he was talking a lot about what it was like working on this show and how different it was to working on the other shows. So listen to that link in the show notes or it's on your feed. Sud Sutherland, the guy's name is, and really interesting stuff he had to say, really chatty guy, really knowledgeable about what he's doing and really interesting insight into the making of these shows. I don't know how true this is, but, but I've seen it somewhere that HBO Max were paying the money for this show. So it wasn't produced in-house at the CW. It was just shown on the CW. It's a bit like what happened with Stargirl. Stargirl was on the now defunct DC streaming service and then was shown on the CW as well. But now it's an in-house CW production. Although I haven't noticed a difference between season one and season two in terms of production values quite yet, although they haven't done an awful lot of high production value stuff in the three episodes that I've seen as we record. So maybe those differences will start to settle in. As we go, and maybe who pays for it will change between season one and two of this show. But yeah, it does seem like it's levelled up in terms of what resources they've got at their disposal. The costume looks a lot more cinematic than the other Arrowverse costumes do. For example, the Superman suit. You could put that on the big screen and it would work because it's so well made. It's so expensive looking. And the CGI does look better than it does on, say, Supergirl to create a relevant comparison Mm. but also throughout the season as the season went on there was some pretty ropey looking cgi stuff i don't really bother about it because it's just part of the fact that i know that this is on tv so i know that the resources aren't the same as Zack snyder would have as an example so i'm fine with the fact that okay that doesn't quite look as believable as it could do, but they don't have those kind of resources. The fact that they're able to give us a sequence of Superman stopping a bridge from falling or something like that is remarkable in itself and it works enough for me. I think the pilot it was very high budget high production values and I think as they had a season budget after that they had to be a bit more choosy in how they were spending their money. Mm. So you tended to get a lot of the big stuff towards the end that looked amazing and then some of the stuff in the middle was a bit ropier or they were doing stuff that demanded less visual flair, such as him getting shot at in a bank or something. We don't really need to spend a ton of money on this to make it look convincing because it's just bullets and stuff. So production-wise, I think certainly leveled up. And David Ramsey, when he was interviewed about the episode he directed, he was talking about how he thinks this sort of style is the future of superheroes on TV. That's what it has to look like now, because shows like The Flash, they're renowned for looking kind of cheap. Although I do think The Flash has pulled off some stunning visual effects work over the years. Every time someone like Grodd or King Shark shows up, it's amazing. They don't usually cheap out when those appear. They have to be creative in how often they can show them because the money. But at the same time, they do it. They pull it off. And I think in this, they didn't have anything as ambitious as that to pull off. John Iron's war suit was practical when he was in it and then there would be a CGI version when it was moving and things. But I didn't really see the difference. I didn't see a problem with it when they switched to that. The CGI Superman could be a bit ropey. You could tell that it wasn't a real person and things like that. But on the whole, I think they majorly pulled it off. And I think the visuals felt very deliberate. And even the ropey CGI sequences were very creative in their own way. I think you're right. I didn't notice too much bad CGI. In fact, the couple of bits that I noticed the worst were in the pilot episodes or very early on. It was whenever he was flying into Metropolis, they were using the same CGI plate shot of buildings that he was flying towards and the city he was flying towards that looked ridiculously cheap. And it was the same office 
windows that people were looking through as he was flying along and they reused the same shot about three or four times and I was like oh I'm, I'm really spotting it it kind of stood out just because of the quality of everything else in those particular episodes but overall the CGI especially when you consider these are TV budgets like you say it's not big film money that's getting thrown at these I know that the processes for creating them are getting better now and cheaper sometimes to manage and they must have a bank of this kind of material now after working so long on the likes of Supergirl and The Flash. These teams will be experts at creating the right effect for the right price. And like you say, directors that have done the show before or done these shows before will know, right, it's actually easier if we have the camera pointing the other way when they arrive and just have some swooshing paper or something to show that they've moved fast rather than throwing in an effect at this particular moment or we'll have a sound effect off screen. Or It's that kind of smart utilisation of what you're doing. You can't pull it off too much because then everyone goes, ah, you're doing it to be cheap. But if you do it the right way, it works. And I think the show did that with the CGI. And like you say, it didn't have massive CGI villains too much, which was probably to its benefit. And it didn't have too many people using over-the-top metahuman powers that cost a lot to affect. So I think that helped out a little bit. Some of the sequences in Smallville towards the finale, where it was like getting grander and more grandiose, the effects and things, you can kind of see the edges of a bit. But apart from that, I thought it was really impressive what they did. They're still kind of doing the Lois and Clark cheat of you hear a whoosh and then Superman is <laughs> there. <laughs> That's the way they do it. I mean, why not? It still works. You have the necessary information. You don't need to spend the money on creating that effect. But yeah, visually, I don't really have any complaints. I think it looks amazing as a show and there's some very creative stuff again the director he talks about how they were using old school cameras and things to create this unique look for the show and i think that really comes across because let's give the flash another kicking why not the flash (laughs) often looks very sterile doesn't it the way that they shoot it it does but i suppose to give flash its due it kind of makes sense for the show because they are working in a lab it's a clean environment the city itself is supposed to be modern and crisp whereas with this show you're in smallville it's supposed to be slightly more run down slightly softer edges it's a more family thing it's a softer focus it's wide open plains and how do you show the wide open plains of plains of kansas is that right term to use the wide open plains of kansas let's just go with it wide open plains of kansas you use widescreen to show that you show the expanse you show the empty that's around whereas you wouldn't necessarily do that for a cityscape would you you'd maybe do it for wide shots of the city but you wouldn't use it when you're up close in the street whereas for this show it kind of makes sense but yeah just tonally different it wasn't as sharp it wasn't as bright but it worked and it makes me look at Legends and Flash slightly differently just because of the way it's done. And maybe it highlights the cheapness in some of the stuff because of how bright it is or how sharp it's being shown. I don't know. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> no, no, I think it does. And it's certainly very muted for a Superman show as well in terms of the colours and so on. There was a mm. thing that was happening way back when, say, Spider-Man 2 came out or The Incredible Hulk, where they were using darker shades of colours that look cartoonish when you try and animate them to make spider-man look more realistic they had to darken the red and blue on his costume because they learned from the first film cgiing the bright red and blue looked ridiculous it just looked like a cartoon and then same with ang lee's hulk where it's like shrek jumping about but in the incredible hulk they darken the shade of green on his skin 
and it looks better. And then by the time you get to the Avengers, they've solved that problem of making a lighter shade of green looking more realistic. So they could do that. I wonder if they're employing those sorts of tactics with this show, making the colours a bit more muted to make it look more real. And Smallville is overcast most of the time. I suspect that's because they're filming in Canada and there's mountains around them. (laughs) Another show set in Smallville had a similar problem. There'd be a lot of shots where in the background you could see the mountains of Kansas, where Kansas is flat. (laughs) It's a pancake. In the DC universe, Kansas has mountains. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was questioning myself when I was saying the plains of Kansas. I'm sitting there going, are there plains in Kansas? Yeah, I mean, it's filmed in Vancouver, I think. Oh, there's definitely hills in Vancouver. Let's go with that. Apologies, people of Kansas who may be listening. Well, no, I don't think they could deny that they are living on flat land. That's one of the defining traits of the place. <laughs> it really is. And in Smallville, when that was on, you would often see mountains in the background. And you'd be like, ha, that's funny. If you were looking for them, you might not be. Nobody cares, really, I don't think. But it's a thing. It's a visual thing that they have to deal with. On the subject of John Diggle, actually, his appearance is quite pointless in a lot of ways. Because as you said, he just delivers a device. And then he doesn't do an awful lot else. He has a chat with Lois... He has a chat with Sam and he talks about how he's done with green boxes falling out of the sky and all that. So it gives you the context of him mentioning what happened at the end of Arrow, but it still doesn't explicitly confirm that this is all the same universe. But I would have thought Diggle being in an episode would have done something more significant, especially when it was the one where Superman was going a bit nuts and they brought in John Irons again after he disappeared for a bit. So it was a bit weird. He was a bit pointless. And it's always annoying when Diggle's pointless. Diggle's such a good character that you kind of want him to be used well. And it just seemed odd. I mean, it's not his oddest appearance in a CW show recently. It wasn't as out of place as some others. It wasn't as much of a stretch. (laughs) But it did seem a bit odd to place him in that. And the fact that they didn't use it to confirm anything else about the universe as well sort of irked me a little bit. This is your chance to clarify what's going on. Okay, clarify it. No this non-committal it was a bit frustrating from that point of view it was funny how many johns were in that specific episode because the previous one ended with lois phoning john for help so it could have in theory been john diggle because it's someone she knows and trusts it was john irons obviously she called him he's gone dark we need your help so you had john henry irons you had john diggle you had jonathan kent all in the same episode (laughs) usually say when you're writing fiction you shouldn't use the same character's name more than once because it will confuse people but they were just liberally (laughs) chucking john you could almost have a justice league of johns in the arrowverse itself you've got john diggle you've got john irons you've got john jones john constantine and jonathan kent i suppose chuck him in with a gun just why not You've got a team of Johns that you can I love play. that idea. That's almost a show that we'd get commissioned yeah. now, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's it. The next spin-off will be the Johns This League. <laughs> I want to cross over with all the Johns before we're not allowed John Constantine anymore, which will be before this could ever happen. Such a shame. But yeah, Diggle, good to see him, but also the episode could have done without him and nothing would have changed. Yeah, nice seeing him there, but it wasn't a great use of him. We want more Diggle but we want useful Diggle. We don't want decorative Diggle. Confirm if he's a Green Lantern, please. Rather than, I'm just going to ignore this box with a green light in it. That was given. <laughs> you can have a Green Lantern and Stargirl. Why can't we have John Diggle as a Green Lantern on something? It's a good question. Uh, but back to characters, back to Clark. His arc was becoming a better father over the season and learning things. And there was a couple of good touch points that I really responded to. There's the one where Jordan wants to play football 
And Clark's like, no, you have powers. That's out of the question. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. And it persists for a little while where they're arguing about it back and forth. And Clark reminisces about the time he wanted to play baseball and his father didn't let him do that because he didn't trust that he could keep his powers in check. And they ended up having this open conversation about, are you sure you can control your powers? Are you sure you're not going to put anybody in danger? And when he puts his trust in Jordan to know where the limits are and to control himself in that way. And it was similar to a thing they did in Smallville, the show as well. But in this show, it was really good. It was that idea of Clark proceeding on these wrong-headed assumptions based on how he was brought up. He was brought up because his dad was afraid that he would be exposed and that his powers would become known. So that's why he was forbidden from playing sports and things. But Clark has to find a different way to parent. And that was a really good example of that. Yeah, definitely. It was a different approach that he had to do based on his own prior experience, trying to have trust in the boys that they would watch out for each other as they were doing it. I mean, obviously, he then embeds himself in the coaching staff (laughs) to (laughs) make sure that it's going to go his way. Um, So maybe not quite showing full trust there, but going, if you're going to do this, okay, fine, but you're going to do it with my supervision to avoid any incidents, especially when it starts to go a bit further on. I found that a really interesting point because, like you're saying, he was on the football team before. It's that line of, well, it might not be safe for other people and also how fair is it competitively for you to have that kind of advantage over everyone else. But at the same time, he doesn't want to take it away from them because, from them, sorry, not just from Jordan, because that's them integrating with the community. That's their way in. That's their way of making friends. If they don't do that, then they're not going to have other ways of doing it. And it's also coming up with lots of excuses why they can't do that. As soon as the coach saw Jordan play, he wants him on the team. He wants him taking part. And to get that encouragement after all that time of being excluded, not just locally in Smallville, but that feeling of, exclusion that he had when he was in Metropolis to then get that in Smallville and then for Clark to try and snatch that away? Difficult. Very, very difficult. Especially when he's trying to win them back, apologise for moving to Smallville and apologise for keeping his secret for so long. And He's trying to win them over. He can't do that and take the one thing that's connecting them to the community away at the same time. And he was doing it out of fear just as his own adopted father was, which is fine because that makes sense. You're an alien. This is uncharted territory for us. We don't know what will happen here. We don't know if you'll be exposed, if you'll be taken away, if you'll be experimented on, etc, etc. So the fear-based approach from Jonathan Kent's point of view makes sense. The Jonathan Kent that was Clark's father, not the Jonathan Kent that's his son. (laughs) That's the same name. I should be more clear. But once he thinks about it and he thinks back to his own childhood about how all he wanted to do was play baseball as a child. He wanted to be involved. He wanted to be part of a team. He wanted to join up with that group and he was denied that opportunity and then he comes to realize that actually i've got an idea about how these powers work how to control them and all that stuff so he can be supportive and the compromise is i will coach the team so i'll be on hand i'll be watching i'll be paying attention and it was when jordan's powers were flaring up and he tried to deny that to clark because he wanted to play the game and clark once he notices it's like you're gone get out go home and he's angry because the condition of you doing this was us being open with each other about what was going on but you had these flare-ups and you were lying about them and that's something that really hurts him the thing about jordan's powers as well there's a few side bits that creep in to that i really like the scene where he needs to expel his heat vision and clark is it his hand he puts in front of his eyes and he's like let it out and because he can take it and you see clark's in pain while he's doing it 
because he's getting heat vision in his hand. That hurts him to a slight extent. But it also hurts him on an emotional level because it's the idea of a parent passing on an illness to their child without meaning to, because that happens all the time. You get hereditary illnesses that go through families and people have kids and then they hope that they won't be saddled with the same illness, whatever it might be. But they are. In that way, the powers are a metaphor for that where Clark and Jordan are concerned. And and Clark feels helpless and he he feels upset because he's passed this on and he didn't want to and there was nothing he could do about it. And then there's nothing he can really do to help with it as well in the long run. So I really like that as a metaphor for those kinds of issues that crop up in family dynamics. I really like how they played with that. That's true. I, I didn't think of it like that as passing on a condition. I did think it was a very moving sort of thing is I will take that pain, I will take that risk and let you release all that energy into my hand. It has to go somewhere. Yeah, it has to go somewhere and we've got to protect everyone that's around, so this is how it's going to go. But I didn't think of it like that. That's a really good point that you've put there. Powers can be a metaphor for almost anything, depending on what angle you take. And they took a lot of angles with it. So for Jordan, they became a source of confidence, a source of strength, a source of belonging in a way, because he was able to join the football team. He was able to improve his social skills. He was able to improve his social standing. He was able to do a lot of things because he had those powers. But at the same time, they were a bit of a curse because he wasn't able to control them. There was things that would happen that were unpredictable that would harm him. And there was things that Clark wasn't sure about and he had to go and get help with, etc., etc. So it can be an illness. And I think in that particular episode, that was what they were driving at. It wasn't the whole point of the journey of his powers but in that episode that was what they were getting at and i really liked it again it's a proper family issue that people can relate to you're right it's a really true family issue i agree with you and then clark just trying to learn how to relate to his children as well i think they did a really interesting thing with jonathan because the whole point of jonathan is that he'd lost well, not the whole point but a lot of his coverage over the season was that he'd lost a lot by moving to smallville but he did it for his brother so he's always there as a supportive brother figure he, he tries to help Jordan deal with his powers. He tries to help him deal with his social life. He tries to help him deal with various other things. They don't simplify it as aligning one twin to one parent, but they almost do. Whereas Jonathan is more closely aligned to Lois because she understands what it's like to be surrounded by people with powers and feel powerless and not know how to contribute or not know whether you can meaningfully contribute. So she recognises that Jonathan is dealing with that and she understands how to deal with that. So she offers her support there. I also find that Jonathan is more closely aligned to Clark in terms of his values because he shares them. There's a couple of scenes where he repeats Clark's values back to him when he's made a decision that's incorrect or that he sees as incorrect. But the right thing to do here is this. And Clark's like, yeah, you're right. I should probably approach this differently. So those values have been imparted in a particular way. You don't really get a sense of Jordan's value system in the same way. But Jonathan certainly has learned a lot from Clark in terms of just how to be and how to be a good person. It's not that he always applies it in the best way because he's still a teenager. There's that episode where he gets drunk when he shouldn't have. And there's sometimes he's a bit mean-spirited towards Jordan because he's jealous of the fact that he has powers and he has that way into a relationship with their dad that he doesn't have. But once he sits and thinks about it a bit, once he internalises it, once he reflects, he then does the right thing. Sometimes he stumbles on the way there, but he does the right thing eventually. I think that's how they did Jonathan really well through the season. Is like you say, he stumbles, 
but it doesn't become something that lasts an entire season's worth. I really expected that they would go down a stereotypical route, which would be the jealous older brother or the jealous twin. Jordan's got powers. I've not. Why have I not? Just this massive jealousy thing. I've lost everything. He's lost his girlfriend. He's lost his place on the sports team. Eventually, they lose football entirely through this season. He's lost pretty much everything that he had, apart from the fact that he's supporting his brother and helping his brother through things. And he's supporting the family. And he's got that disconnect. And instead of it becoming just a massive shouting fest and a mountain of arguments, okay, you see a few of those stumbles. But it doesn't become his defining trait. It doesn't become the thing that marks him out in this show at all. He's still there for the family. He still helps and he's still supportive of his brother in the end. And I think that's just really well written through this show because I was like, oh, I can't be bothered with a jealous brother through the whole thing. Oh, it's going to be really annoying. They didn't do it. They showed little aspects of it, but they didn't do this antagonistic brother relationship. And that I liked. Because of course he's going to be envious because his brother has superpowers. You would naturally be envious of that, but he also sees it as a bit of a difficult thing for his brother to deal with and a difficult thing for the family to deal with as well. So he has to push aside his own feelings and do the mature thing. He has to be the grown-up in this situation, especially when it's established early on that Jordan has a social anxiety disorder that in theory impacts him. One of the disappointing things about the season is that you don't really do very much with it other than use it as a point of connection for him and Sarah, but it doesn't feed into much as the season goes on. But it's the idea that Jordan isn't as well adjusted as Jonathan is. Making friends doesn't come easily. Finding purpose in life doesn't come easily for him, whereas Jonathan has much more natural ways in of Mm. making friends and, and whatever. He's athletic, he's... I guess he's fashionable. I don't know anything about fashion, but I get the impression that he has a trendy haircut, whereas Jordan has a bit of a messy haircut. So on a visual level, you can see that Jonathan, he's the one that has an idea of what looks good in society and how to fit in and things like that, whereas Jordan doesn't necessarily. Like I said, he's an introvert that spends time on his own playing video games and he plays piano, which is kind of isolating. Even the piano thing comes out of nowhere, but he does things Mm -hmm. that are kind of isolating, whereas Jonathan doesn't. So it's established early on that Jonathan's the one that guides him through life, really. And when they first meet Sarah in the first episode, well, they don't meet her, they met her years ago. They mentioned the last time they visited Martha and Smallville, they met her, but they were younger at that point. He's the one that leads the conversation for a while until they are able to talk on their own, that kind of stuff. So he's always doing that thing of lifting his brother up. And then you do get those moments where he's like, you know what, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of supporting you all the time. I've had enough of you getting all the attention. I've had enough of all of this. And they do have those arguments. But then, again, that very real sibling thing of Jordan will walk in and he'll just start a conversation about something unrelated. And then they're back. The relationship is repaired in a way. It's very real. I love how real the teenagers are in this show. They are a little Mm. bit precocious, but they're very real as well. It's that thing of the sibling argument where eventually it builds up. You blow the vent, you release all of the steam, and then it's back down again. You'll have an argument, but it won't last that long, which is what they don't do often in TV shows. It's no, the argument's going to last forever. It's going to be, this is it. This is my defining thing for the entire season. They didn't do it. Like I say, it was great. The aspect of Jonathan 
having to care for Jordan before. You get the impression that he's been looking out for him at school. Jordan's had episodes in the past or he's had to be on medication and different things he's had to be looked out for and and who would look out for him the most his brother he's definitely got that protective aspect around him and getting to see how in social situations and at school before Jordan gains a little bit more of his confidence later on in the season by the end of the season like you say he is leading conversations he is making sure that his brother gets invited to the thing or gets supported by the team or isn't getting picked on stands up for him, helps lead him into a conversation, suddenly sets him up with someone to make sure that he has a conversation. He does all those little things, those little helping hands and little guiding moves without necessarily being too showy about it. And I think that's very realistic and very true for it. I thought they did a neat job of it. Yeah, those were two great characters and they were very distinct and they were very defined in their roles. I do think it was quite a Jordan-heavy season because of the power side of it, whereas Jonathan is a bit adrift at some points, especially after the football thing ends, because he doesn't have anything after that point. But I think the whole point is he doesn't have anything as well, as in how much he sacrificed moving to Smallville. So maybe next season will be about him finding his place, finding what he's going to do. They started to do it a bit with the, I'm going to work with John on building guns, which is a weird thing that parents will <laughs> encourage, but in a superhero <laughs> family, why not? That's something he tries to do. He tries to protect the family in the way that he can without powers. But again, that was quite a realistic thing. He's always been able to protect his brother up until this point where now the power levels and what can go wrong are way bigger than what he can handle on his own. So that's when he starts looking through the trailer for, I'm going to find a weapon or something that I can protect the family with to make sure that I'm still able to protect my brother and still able to protect my family if I need to. He needs to level up. He has that feeling. I do get what you're saying, where him working with John in that particular way kind of comes out of nowhere. You don't get much about Jonathan's engineering background or wanting to learn tech in that particular way through anything else that you see on screen. A bit like Jordan's piano. Again, that kind of comes out (laughs) of nowhere. You don't really see anything that hints that he's even technology savvy to begin with. Him showing interest in John kind of makes sense. This is a man without superpowers who is still able to go toe-to-toe to an extent with Superman. Of course he's going to be interested in that. I could still be a part of this family and I could do something... If I was more like John and had a suit or did a thing like this, it's something that we've seen through Supergirl as well. It's weaponized suits that can do all that sort of stuff. It allows people to go toe-to-toe in a similar way. So I think it's really interesting. And the conversation that he had on that side with Lois... Lois? I keep saying the name weird. Apologies. (laughs) I'll say it right once and then you're just going to have to edit it through the entire podcast. Yeah, that ain't happening. (laughs) conversation that he has with Lois where it's I know what it's like to be the person without powers in this family when Clark disappears off and you can do nothing to help them because you are so outclassed that there's not much that you can do and the most you can be is be there when they get back or help in whatever way you can but you're just going to have to get used to that to an extent we do what we can and I thought that was really powerful that was really strong again it was that family relationship that realizing listen i've been dealing with this for years you've been dealing with this for weeks or months in terms of the showtime i've been dealing ever since i found out your father's secret every time you've watched me looking at the telly 
seeing something that Superman's doing in a far-off world. That's been me panicking over what Superman is doing in a far-off country. Yeah, and Lois was very well done. I really like her relationship with Clark. It's very lived in. They don't have any major issues. They have disagreements and they discuss them like adults, which again is refreshing for an Arrowverse show, isn't it? Mm. Let's think back to season four of Arrow where Oliver and Felicity fall out over Oliver not telling her about his son and it just goes on for so long and both sides are being unreasonable and it's just painful. But they do have things that they disagree about. It's later in the season where I forget what Clark does, but he does something. He doesn't tell her about something and she's annoyed at him. There's something that happened. I wish I could remember exactly what it is, but she's annoyed at something that he doesn't tell her. Oh, it's the kryptonite weapons. That's what it is. He makes the unilateral decision for Sam to get rid of the kryptonite weapons or to let Sam get rid of the kryptonite. No, he makes the decision that Sam should keep the kryptonite weapons because they're a good stopgap in case he does go off the rails because something happened that made him think it was a possibility. Fine. And then Lois is like, no, these weapons shouldn't exist because they may fall into the wrong hands and whatever. Both sides had really strong arguments, really understandable arguments. And the thing Lois was annoyed about is that they did discuss it. And then there's that bit where she's running off because Jordan's been arrested. Yeah, Jordan's both, in No, prison. both have been arrested. Both have been arrested uh, for ducking out of school. And she's like, I'm really mad at you and I feel bad that I'm mad at you, but I have to stay angry because I have to go and yell at our son for getting arrested. And stuff <laughs> like that. and but that's a really good reaction. She's aware that she's being emotional in this moment, but also at the same time, she's, very valid in that emotional state at that point. And there is other points in the season where they do have little bits of disagreements. And there's even that, there's a couple of bits where we have to present a united front against these two teenagers. So it's this very lived in, very well-cultivated relationship that has had its ups and downs over the years, but ultimately remains very strong. And a single argument doesn't mean that they're splitting up forever. They argue because that's what people in relationships do, but they resolve it and they take the time that they need to calm down, get some perspective, and then they resolve it and then they move on. And that's, again, quite rare in Arrowverse shows, certainly in some of them, and great to see. I think Lois has done brilliantly throughout the season in her relationship with Clark. And obviously, once you've commented on what you think of her relationship with Clark, we'll comment on what she does outside of that because she isn't just defined by that. I can't really argue with anything that you've said. It's a very lived in relationship. It's a stable relationship where they are open, they discuss things with each other. And like you say, realistically, they have arguments, they get over it. Everything is not a breakup exercise, it's not several episodes worth of drama and talking to other people about the problem instead of talking to each other. And I think that shows how stable that relationship is. We already saw hints at that relationship through Supergirl and when they were appearing on that. I know this is a slightly different dynamic because of crisis and everything like that, but we've seen bits of that relationship through and it's always seemed stable that they're meant to be together and they'll support each other. Be it, I need you to come and support me at this town hall meeting with my dad or anything like that. Yeah, I need you to support me in front of the rest of the town because you're Smallville's Clark Kent. I need your support on the back of this. Come and help me with this thing. It's a really good relationship to see on the TV and like you say, just a breath of fresh air in comparison to some of the stuff that we've seen before. There's some good relationships out there in the Arrowverse 
there's some really interesting dynamics. The thing is that they fall back on old habits far too often. And it just makes it a bit more refreshing to see this. Even Oliver and Felicity was a good relationship before it fell apart. And then they got back together and whatever. But that whole splitting them apart because of the William problem was just painful. It dragged on. It just wasn't any good. It was just very frustrating to watch. And then we've had some Barry and Iris stuff that has been very frustrating to watch and so on. So I think it's very refreshing to see that play out. And that town hall thing that you mentioned there was the one where he was supposed to be there and be the voice of reason, as you say, Clark Kent from Smallville, as the resident of the town that people look up to and respect. But he had to go off and be Superman, so he didn't turn up. And Lois just had to swallow that because she understood why. In another show, it would be, oh, don't worry, I'll be there, I promise. And then something would happen, he'd have to disappear off as Superman. It happened all the time in Smallville. We need Clark Kent to be here to help us with this thing, but he has to run off and fight a villain or whatever he needs to do. Clark, I really needed you to put up the bunting for the pageant that's happening and you didn't (laughs) show up. This is now going to be a big thing for the next three episodes. (laughs) So he would come back and the Lois that wouldn't know his secret would be annoyed at him because she was counting on him. But the Lois that does know his secret is annoyed, but also understands exactly why. They've both made the collective decision that if I'm needed somewhere as Superman, that takes priority. And they even talk about that when she was covering for him at the Daily Planet. They made a decision that being Superman is more important because it saves lives. Whereas this speaking at a town hall thing, not a priority. But at the same time, Lois can still be annoyed because she really needed that. Very clever, very interesting conflict and very nuanced conflict at the same time. Nuanced. There's a good word. I like that. (laughs) And then her trying to adapt to living in Smallville as well because she leaves the job. She does it for ethical reasons because she doesn't like Morgan Edge. She just quits because she doesn't want to have him calling the shots on what she can report about. And they move to Smallville. She can't work for the Daily Planet and live in Smallville at the same time, unless she can work remotely, which you know, we can all do, I suppose. But she can't really chase mm-hmm. down stories in Metropolis when she's living in Smallville. So it's a bit of a necessity. But then she goes to work with Chrissy at the Smallville Gazette, I think it is, the paper, the local paper. And suddenly this local paper has this Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's <laughs> considered to be the best in her field working for it. And then they work stories there. So that's her finding a bit of purpose there. And then she puts a financial stake in it at the end of the season as well. So she's doing that. And she even butts heads with Chrissy over telling stories, particularly over Sam and his withholding information because of the military thing and her not pushing for it because she understands why he's withholding that information and understands what that information is. But Chrissy doesn't like that because it's against journalistic ethics. And that's another discussion she has with Clark over, it's my duty to report this story. And yeah, but we've been pretty fast and loose with journalistic ethics over the years. She's like, yeah, but that's only in regards to your secret. So there's a line that she'll draw. If it's protecting Clark's secret, I will print lies. But anything else, I want to tell the truth. And that's an interesting conflict that she has within herself that she has to resolve. Now, I don't even think it's necessarily that she'll print lies. Is that you've got to write around the truth. You've got to leave particular blanks in the story. Again, it was an interesting debate. Like you say, it. in the past, we've had to tread this line. Why wouldn't you tread this line now? And the fact that she gives the story and she gives the interview to Chrissy to write, to go, I can give you all the stuff. Here's everything that we've got, but you've got to write it. I'm too close. I'm too connected to it. You need to do it in an independent way. I think it's really interesting. The fact that she's taken the step down from something like the Daily Planet to work on a lowly local newspaper 
is really interesting. It's like she's rediscovering what her interest in journalism was, being in Metropolis and in amongst the hustle and bustle. She's actually rediscovered that hunt for a good story. As soon as she starts hearing about Morgan Edge is buying all the houses in town and he owns the bank now and he owns this and he owns that, it just pangs her interest and she goes off and does a proper investigation into it. And at the beginning of the season, it's pretty much disconnected from everything else that's going on at that particular point, or seemingly disconnected from everything else that's going on at that point. So it's that interesting thing of her tracking down a lead and properly investigating, getting sources and showing how dedicated she is into her researching. It was good seeing that reporter side of her that you don't normally get. A lot of the time it's, oh, they report for the Daily Planet, but all it'll be is at the end of an episode or something, they would show Lois Lane writing an article about how Superman saved Metropolis again or took down a villain again with maybe a bit of over-the-top narration over it or something. In this, you actually get to see a bit of investigation going on. You get to see her working on an article and following leads and doing something completely independent, which is good. The fact that she's committed to the paper in the end, the only bit that stung a little bit to me in the commitment to the paper at the end was the line, look at what we've built together. It's like, hello, <laughs> you've been writing for this paper for what? Let's say in show time a few months. <laughs> look at what yeah. we've built together. Your paper was nothing before I came along. I want half. <laughs> well, hang on. Just simmer down a little bit here. Unless there was a big chunk of story missing where the paper is now selling by the bucket load. It doesn't sound like it is. It's still in financial troubles. It's obviously not picked up. So there was a little bit of that in the story that I was like, eh, really? Really, though? What you've done? I'd be giving a little kick in there. It shows our commitment to the town. It's another way of showing that she is equally committed to Smallville as Clark is. Because in that final couple of episodes, she goes on TV. She does that live report from the rooftop, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on and how well that worked as a device on screen. She does that report. You're suggestion through her ability to do that and the fact that Morgan Edge is kind of out of the picture at this point is that the door would be open for her to go back to that big time journalism and in inverted commas that she had before in theory yeah in theory from that end piece there the fact that she was able to go on do a report she wasn't chucked out because of something she did at the paper like you said she made the ethical decision the door was open at that point for her to go back towards her own life, they hadn't sold the place in Metropolis yet. They hadn't sold their place. They hadn't made the full commitment yet. So that final bit is her saying, yeah, I'm going to stick with Smallville and I'm going to stick with this paper and try and do something bigger with it. It was a good way of showing her commitment to the town as much as Clark's commitment to that place. Yeah, it was that point they were both making a commitment because she says to Mm. John, you can stay and you can help Clark on the farm. So it's clear that Clark will be going back to just being a farmer, which... I guess makes sense, because what is Clark doing? What are they doing for money? We always think about that when we're doing these podcasts, don't we? It's where are these people getting their finance from? And they do address it sometimes, but it does annoy me. It's like, how much money have they got just in savings and whatever? Because they were able to take over Martha's mortgage quite easily without any real issues. They didn't sell the place in Metropolis till the end of the season. It happens off screen. So are they just loaded? Journalists don't make that much money, really. <laughs> Does Superman run a crowdfunder? Has he got a GoFundMe? If you'd like to donate for the operational costs of Superman, <laughs> donate here. <laughs> yeah. 
not charging you for saving your life or anything, but if you want to buy me a coffee, then go to <laughs> go, go, go to coffee, coffee link. <laughs> <laughs> For just a couple of pounds, you can buy Superman a Starbucks. He's got a patron for a couple of pounds a month. I'll <laughs> name check you in a rescue. <laughs> I'll name check you in a rescue for two hundred dollars. I will fly past your son's birthday party. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're not supposed to really think about the whole financial side of it. They're raising two teenage sons as well. That's expensive. Where's the money coming from? That is dear, but I mean, a brownstone in Metropolis, I'm guessing, is equivalent to the same in, say, New York or something, so... Yeah, I'd imagine so, yeah. They've obviously got some dosh. <laughs> they've got some money somewhere. Yeah, they got it somehow. Who knows? Maybe Sam gave them the deposit because he's a high-up military general. I don't know. It wasn't in the flashback episode how they managed to buy the house. <laughs> it's not important. It's just we like to speculate about it. We like to think about it. <laughs> We do. It's what we end up doing in these shows. Yeah. And there was other things that Lois would do on her own as well. Her friendship with Lana grew organically as well. They bonded over the fact that they had teenagers and the problems of having teenagers. And the fact that Lana was Clark's ex-girlfriend didn't seem to factor in. It didn't seem to be anything that she was threatened by. I did half expect the whole, there are lingering feelings after the decades they spent apart or whatever, but they got away from that. They just went out for a while in high school and it's not a problem anymore. That's the adult way of approaching it. That's fine. They got around that. They didn't do that, which I was very glad about. Again, when they introduced Lana at the beginning, I'm like, oh no. No, they're going to do the lingering <laughs> feelings thing. Oh, Christ, no. The one that got away. The one that got away. I've got regrets. Maybe you should have stayed. Maybe we should have been. They didn't. In fact, they showed how good a friendship it was. In particular, how it was it the second last episode or maybe the second from last? I can't remember. Where Clark goes round our house to go out. Am I too late for the open house? The open house viewing. Yeah. And how's the chat about convincing her to stay? I met my best friend in Smallville. Exactly. It's that conversation and it worked really well. It sort of showed we're friends and we're stable and it's not any of that lingering doubt or the one that got away or anything like that. It's just really good friends. And I don't like seeing a friend down and I don't want you to leave because of this kind of thing. And it just works really strongly. And like you say, her connection to Lois as well, it's not a jealousy thing on either side and it's a supportive relationship between the two of them where it's the parenting advice, it's the Smallville advice, it's the you've moved to a new place, you'd know barely anyone in town, you're going to get treated as an outsider, well let me show you the way around, let me show you who's worth paying attention to, who's not worth paying attention to, who it's worth speaking to or not, don't care what they think, it kind of worked in that sort of way. It's couples that have known each other for a long time and it was written and portrayed in a very believable way. It worked. It's another one of these things in the show that clicked. Yeah, and it's a good time to come onto the Cushings then, Lana's family. I like that overall dynamic, the fact that Kyle and Lana were essentially on the outs. Their marriage was breaking down. It was mentioned that Kyle sleeps on the couch. Kyle's a very hostile person, especially to Lois early on. But Lois is questioning Morgan Edge, and Kyle just wants to save the town, so he's sort of blinded to what Edge is really up to because he just really wants to save the town. He can't see the clear disadvantages to this because all he sees is a town that's failing and a billionaire that's bringing money into it and promising to offer jobs and all that stuff. So it's very easy to understand where Kyle's coming from and it's easy to understand where that hostility is coming from, especially because his home life isn't great because he is 
struggling to relate to Lana as well. And the fact that he doesn't know what to do about his daughter's mental health issues. And there's the fact that the other daughter is supposedly a bully, which they do nothing with, but it's there. They didn't do tons with, I always forget the name, and if it wasn't written in front of me, <laughs> I wouldn't remember the other daughter's name. But Sophie, they didn't really do much with Sophie. There was little bits. In the end, they ended up just doing fun stuff with her, where I'm going to tell mum that you're kissing a boy out in the back garden kind of thing that was going on. They ended up doing that, but they didn't really do much with the sisters from that point of view. Kyle was interesting. Sometimes he worked for me, sometimes he didn't, and sometimes there was obvious plays in there on what was going to happen to him and his story. But again, a pretty believable relationship and a a relationship that develops throughout the season, especially the one with his daughter where he's sort of regarded as a drunk. He's been out drinking and he's just appearing on the sofa and he's kind of deadbeat, but for the town, he's the town representative. He's someone that other people are looking up to and respecting, but the home life is abysmal. It's that public face v private face sort of thing that's going on. But then they do the sort of interesting bit with the talent show competition and he's going to play guitar with her and it's the twist of that and it worked really well. Not so much with some of the stuff around about the firehouse and things towards the end and the way the town reaction was, I guess. They had to have someone that they could reach to pin the blame on, I guess. Some of that didn't quite work for me. The interesting thing about that is that was used as a vehicle to bring the family closer together. When they had nothing Mm. external, they found support internally with each other. They had each other, and that was ultimately all they had. So that helped repair the relationship a bit. And then you had Lana and Kyle starting to communicate as the season went on as well, where... The suggestion was they hadn't really been communicating, but there's lots of things about Kyle that seem a bit old-fashioned in some ways or a bit ignorant, but not in a mean-spirited way. It's just that he doesn't really understand what's going on. It's that bit where they're picking Sarah up after her therapy appointment, and he's like, this is embarrassing. We can't be seen sitting out here. People will know her daughter has problems, and that's going to damage her standing in the town and whatever. So he's more concerned with how he'll be perceived for putting his daughter through therapy than supporting his daughter because she needs help. And she comes out of that appointment and sits in the car and he's like, how was the appointment? She's like, I'm not telling you. Between me and doctor, whoever. You never see that therapy appointment either because it's not important to see her internalising her feelings in that way and talking about them because it's explored through the way she reacts to other people anyway. We don't need another painful adverse example of someone sitting in a therapist's office talking about their feelings which relate to what else is going on in the episode looking at you flash with that couples counseling pain (laughs) that we had to endure a couple of seasons ago so there's that that we don't get to see which is great but i like the fact that he's just i don't understand what our daughter is going through i don't understand why she just doesn't get over it and things like he doesn't say that but it's implied in the way that he conducts himself because he's someone that just kind of gets on with it or he tries to take action to get on with it rather than talking about it and it's the fact that he doesn't talk about it that creates that gulf between them and creates that distance in his family and I guess maybe makes Sophie more of a bully if that's what she is which they mentioned once Allegedly. and never do anything <laughs> she's picking on other kids in her class or something like that okay that's a weird thing I mentioned but no the Cushings were interesting in that way and I like that Kyle was hostile towards Lois because she was asking the questions that he should be asking, but he's not because he's so focused on getting the town back up and 
running again. Yes, don't poke holes in my one plan to save this town because there are no other options. Stop pulling it to pieces because if this doesn't happen, that's it. It's understandable. You people roll into town, you tell us what to do and you don't understand what we're going through. Again, it's a fair point. The argument between them is fair enough and I think the way that the Cushings reconnect works really well. Kyle getting possessed by a Kryptonian, it's necessary for Sarah to understand how much she'll miss him or how much she's been misjudging him, but it was a bit weak as a story point as well. Worked, again, on an emotional level from a story point of view. It wasn't hugely significant, but it was good for Sarah to be like, oh, wait. I've just been assuming things wrongly and I should probably fix that. It all feeds into that. And then at the end of the season, it's not even at the end of the season, before that, when the the truth about Edge becomes known and he has to eat crow and say to Lois, sorry, I ignored this, these obvious red flags and you were just trying to help and you're okay in my book sort of thing. It made sense. It was a natural progression. It takes a big person to admit they were wrong kind of thing and he doesn't seem like the kind of person that admits he's wrong very often so the fact that he did it then means even more and he wins a bit of space back in the community it did work and it didn't work for me and in a way i don't know what felt off about it i think it's because it felt like one of the more predictable arcs in a season that surprised me quite a lot i think maybe that's it rather than that it wasn't done well it was more that oh this followed the playbook that i was expecting where like I say, a lot of other things was like, oh, they're not following into sort of stereotype things. Whereas with that, they did to an extent. Yeah, to an extent. I think it was still well done within those trappings that they were not stuck in, but that they committed to. I think the weakness came with the fact that they didn't show clearly enough that Smallville was ruined by taking this gamble in Morgan Edge and having it fail. That was a big problem because it just became background information at some point. Yeah, it wasn't shown on screen too much. I guess it was more you were being told it rather than shown it. It was a lot of people saying, oh, that's it. The business is on Main Street. It's all gone. Oh, it's so quiet. There's no one about. But then you would see plenty of people about. No one's doing business in town because the DOD's here. But presumably these DOD people who are in town are having to shop, eat, sleep somewhere. They've got to have lunch, right? The diner was still open. They've got to have lunch somewhere. The diner is doing great guns. Everyone else is suffering a bit. All the other places on the high street are not doing well. The mine was going to provide the jobs now there's no mine jobs people that had moved presumably to work there have maybe gone it's not shown enough the decline in smallville at the beginning you get the lines about how martha had been supporting so many businesses or so many people through a tough time you don't really get it then you don't get it towards that bit at the end because the arc throughout has been smallville's odd decline this just seems a steeper decline than before i guess this is the final straw yeah well they sold the mines under the understanding that it would revitalize the town and then it didn't and they have that problem to solve. And Clark's almost naive notion of Smallville's a community that helps each other. When we're down, we help each other. And Kyle's point about, well, we can't help each other if everyone needs help. Yeah. Help can only be exchanged if one side is coming from a stronger position. Totally. It's, I can help feed you if I have equal food myself. I can spare you lunch if I also have some lunch available. If everyone's struggling for lunch, then tough. No one's going to be able to help anyone else out with that. It does show a bit of naivety from that point. And again, someone that's been away from town for a long period of time. Yes, he's got that connection to the town, but he's remembering the good old days, in inverted commas, of Smallville, rather than what the town 
presently is. He still doesn't seem to have come to understand it, I guess. And there's this angle as well of when Clark's not in a place, it declines because it happens in Smallville, obviously, in the years that he moves out. The town declines in the years that he's gone. And then there's that one mention of in Metropolis, the crime rate's up because Superman's not there as often. (laughs) So it's when Clark's not around, somewhere gets worse is a weird sub-theme that doesn't really go anywhere or doesn't get explored in any way, but it is there. So I I find that interesting that Clark, a.k.a. Superman, is a positive influence wherever he happens to be. And when he's not there, things get worse. I suppose it adds a bit of realism to that universe where if you knew that Metropolis was regularly patrolled by someone like Superman, it would be a deterrent to crime, which would then make the city more attractive, I guess. It's one of those realistic aspects, a bit like when we ask, where does the money come from? I suppose that would impact... Gotham's crime rate, for example, would make the place way cheaper to live in, (laughs) presumably, than maybe Metropolis. I don't know how things are going over on The Flash with the amount of villain attacks and everything like that, what the property prices through there are like. It always looks nice and glossy, as we've already discussed. You have to imagine a flat in the centre of Central City has got to be one of the cheapest places you can live because it does (laughs) get sucked into black holes or something. people trying to crash rockets into the middle of it and all sorts i guess so well wasn't it that horrible comedy show powerless or whatever it was called they were like an insurance company for superhero attacks or there was an insurance company for superhero attacks and there would be of course there would be you would have to get superhero insurance if you lived in one of these major cities was your property destroyed by a supervillain attack well that's not covered on your policy you've got a fire flood theft you don't have superhero insurance (laughs) Yeah, sorry, but you're screwed. So that's that. Again, it was not something they did anything with, but the idea of somewhere is better and worse, depending on whether Clark Kent is near or involved. Which, yeah, that's Superman. He's an inspiration. Superman's not so active in Smallville. They deliberately don't have him just cutting about Smallville very often, at least publicly. He does get summoned by Lois and the kids a couple of times, but it's not really a public thing. The only time he's publicly there is when the DOD steps in. You have that bit where Lana sees Superman for the first time in proximity and she's like, oh my God, that's Superman. Holy crap. Not realising that, of course, her best friend not wearing glasses. Again, the conceit. We have talked about it a million (laughs) times and you have to accept it. Oh, don't worry. I'll be the host of your mother. That's not weird at all. (laughs) I'll do that. I kind of like how they flipped it on their head in another show that I'm sure we'll be talking about a podcast soon where the person puts on their glasses as a disguise. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a debate over which is the disguise. Yeah, which is the disguise. disguise or is Superman the disguise? I suppose that's true, really. I think there was a good throwaway line at one point as well about, oh, nothing like this has happened in Smallville in years. It used to happen all the time, but it stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. The locals at the time go, God, all those strange, nonsensical things that used to happen around town, they all kind of stopped around about the time that you left. Yeah, there wasn't a mention of there used to be some weirder stuff, but even when they show the flashbacks of Clark figuring himself out as a hero, I think he goes to Metropolis to do it, when that young kid that looks nothing like Tyler Hecklin is playing Clark. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. He did go to Metropolis, didn't he? Wearing the ski mask or whatever it was, just to try and stop some criminals. It was interesting. But yeah, the Cushing's a good family dynamic. I like them as one of the pillars of the show. Sarah is a character that obviously we have to talk about. She was central. And the connection she had to Jordan over the fact that she understands mental health issues. She mentions early on, she mentions in the first episode that she tried to kill herself, which is really dark, but also very 
honest and the fact that she's at a point where she's not ashamed of the issues that she experiences and that she's open to talking about them. That's an important message and it's very well told. And I like how it feeds into the way that she relates to other people so she can help Jordan deal with things that he's thinking about. She has her own problems, but also it leaves her a bit more emotionally aware than she would otherwise be. So I mentioned that the twins are a bit precocious and they are. And so is Sarah, but that makes perfect sense for her because she has a weekly appointment where she has to dig into her thoughts and feelings, where she has to dig into triggers that impact her life in certain ways. And she's constantly thinking about them, constantly challenging those thoughts and feelings and constantly trying to improve herself. So it makes sense that she's going to be of a level of understanding that people don't have. So when she tells her parents that they're stupid for trying to move away from Smallville, for example, that's a very wise beyond your years sort of thing. But it's, she reacts to it in a very teenage way by exploding and reacting with hostility. And then there's a bit where she isn't on good terms with her parents and she walks in, picks up her dinner plate and just leaves. And Lana's like, are you going to join us for dinner? And she's just like, nope. And then just walks away. That's again, a very impetuous teenage thing. That's really good. And then it leads to a really open conversation between her and Lana, where Lana admits that she has no idea how to handle her, no idea how to help her. She wants to help her and she wants to be there for her. So that was all great stuff. I love the Sarah character. The stuff about her just getting into singing and whatever, where she sings the same song two weeks running in a similar circumstances is it's a CCW thing, isn't it? I suppose we need the kids to be doing something and a talent show is a very high school thing. So we'll do that. So that was a thing that happened. But on the whole, she was a great character and I loved the build-up of her relationship with Jordan. I found that really believable, how it got to that point at the end. Jordan declaring his undying love for her so soon, a bit on the nose, but it makes sense as well for him because he is someone that rushes into certain things. I mean, he did kiss her when they knew each other for a few hours. So it makes sense that he would be that passionate that quickly. It doesn't make sense that she would necessarily be okay with it, but at the same time, there was a lot going on, I suppose. But I loved the character. I thought she was brilliant and I thought the actress playing her was... Superb. I was always looking forward to seeing what Sarah was going to be up to in a given episode. Yeah, I think they played Sarah really, really well through this season. Again, I've kind of got to follow what you said there. Her relationship with Jordan, it worked. It was a really natural relationship that was formed. I'm not too sure what the space of time is show-wise. I keep saying a couple of months to try and get through some football season stuff and things. And I don't know if I'm quite right in saying that or if I'm running it too short time-wise or whatnot. I think it's just a matter of weeks. It's not very long. It's like weeks or a few months because they play a few football games and tournaments and stuff. So it must be across a certain period of time, I guess. But the sort of slow build relationship and the way that they initially bond over problems, she's very open actually quite early on. It's not even very closed off at the beginning, but she works really well with Jordan. She seems to have the trust. I didn't think there was too much a problem with him declaring his love at that point. You see that he's going to say it a few scenes before and he wimps out of it. And then that sudden realisation when he's going to get taken away, this might be my only chance to say it. If I'm ever going to say it, this is the moment. And then he does it. I kind of found that believable. Yeah, it makes sense for him. It makes sense for him. And it's a young person's romance as well. I don't know if the word has the same weight that it would have in someone older. It's a younger person's relationship. As much as maybe Sarah's a little bit wiser in her years, I would say possibly the opposite for Jordan, I guess. 
he has been as we've discussed before, a very closed-off individual until that point. So that's my theory. With the rest, I've only got to agree with what you've said. I've not been able to disagree with it, and you've put it over so well. <laughs> and if uh, I say it's just going to pale in comparison, so yeah, I'll go with what you said. Yeah, she's just a really good character, and the pillars of the show being what they are, the superhero stuff, the parental stuff, the teenage stuff, and I think the teenage stuff is always done very well because I always feel like they are teenagers. Whereas you watch so many shows where they're just adults, but they're at high school. Smallville, for example, as good as that show was, they're grown people at high school. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting until Sarah had her problem running the entire bar, cafe and cinema set up in the town. <laughs> yeah, or running a newspaper or something. Yeah, running a newspaper. I don't know how to juggle my full-time job apparently running this cafe and my schoolwork, which apparently I've got to do. Those problems sometimes just don't quite merge up and they haven't done that in the show which i'm impressed by and even the other relationships with people at school seem very believable one of the things that worked pretty well for me as much as i said that the cushing's being kind of pushed out by the community didn't work in some ways in my head for the way that the town would react after all those years one of the interesting turns towards the end of the season at the beginning you've got jordan and Jonathan not getting invited to the parties, not being spoken to by the rest of the town because they're outsiders, they're new, no one knows them, no one wants to interact with them. But Sarah is getting interacted with with the rest of the people. She is getting invited to the things. And then towards the end of the season, there's the, oh, so-and-so's got an open house. We're all going to go around and hang there. You two are invited, but not Sarah. It shows that swivel and dynamic, that change through the season, that they have been accepted and they have been taken in, but Sarah's been pushed out on that side. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Though. And the general sense you get about the teenagers in Smallville is that they're all just really bored. It's a small town, there's nothing to do. So they do just get themselves in trouble or they butt heads because there is nothing to do. And you get a sense of that kind of through that Tegan, is that her name? That Tegan girl that Jonathan has an attraction to and she's trying to get information about the military out of him and then she apologises and they become friends with the suggestion of more, perhaps later on, who cares? But the whole idea is these teenagers are just bored. They're in a small town that has very little to entertain them. And the reason I mentioned Tegan is because there is that line where she says there isn't an awful lot to see. And yeah, about it. I do like that one of the small problems that they get into is trespassing by a pond. <laughs> yeah, it's private like, property for some reason. This pond is private property and the local thinks it is worthy of law enforcement. Yeah. It is a common problem with young people in anywhere really, isn't it? If you're below a certain age, if you're below drinking age, what is there to do? Really? Not a lot. There doesn't seem to be a lot of facilities for a lot of people. And that's why you get a lot of youth crime in certain places and whatever else. It's not even clear if Smallville has a cinema. Have these people seen Endgame? Because there may not be a cinema nearby. Although there is a cinema building, isn't there? That you see it has the awning outside with the now showing whatever on the side of it. But you do just get the idea that there's just bugger all to do if you're below a certain age in Smallville. Even if you're over a certain age in Smallville, there's still nothing to do. And that's very real, at least to me. No, Definitely. I agree. Yeah, so John Irons slash Captain Luthor. We start off with <laughs> him in his big mech suit fighting Superman. He's known as the Stranger early on. He has his big mech suit and his AI. And he's referred to by my personal friend, Daisy Tormey, as the AI, as Captain Luthor. And it's, oh my God, but he's black. We already have a Luthor in this universe, maybe, and he's not black. What's all that about? And then you find out that he's from another Earth. 
and you find out he hates Superman because that Earth has an evil Superman. And then eventually you find out that he's John Irons. And I think the mystery surrounding him early on meant that there wasn't an awful lot to the character because he would just show up for a scene or two to remind you that he's there and then give you another little clue as to his origins. And then once they reveal that he's John Irons and tell you his backstory, there's a rake of content associated with him that they can play with. And I love the way they do it. I love the way that he got to the point of being able to trust Clark slash Superman of this Earth by realising that he's nothing like the one that destroyed his family and destroyed his Earth. And the way that it was done by Lois humanising him, by telling John Clark's secret so that John could then think about, if I kill this guy, I'm taking away the father of these two boys. And that's not something I'm necessarily comfortable with, or it's not something that I'm immediately comfortable with. The way they did that and his pain, the way he was coping with his loss or not coping with his loss, the way he was trying to avenge his earth and his family and trying to save this one by getting rid of Superman, who he was so sure was going to become evil because it happened over there. Just loved it. I loved that character. Yeah, I had the same thing as you at the beginning of the season where because of the mystery, they're kind of tied up in what they can do, which means that the character just comes all over as a sort of generic, ominous presence. You know, he's hanging about in his van doing research and sort of toying with Lois a little bit and... You're like, oh, what's the motivation? What's going on? And then, of course, when you get the multiple plot twists with this character, the multiple reveals, initially you get the Captain Luthor line, and I'm like, oh, I don't need another Luthor. <laughs> I don't need another Luthor. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. I've made very clear on this podcast my feelings around Luthors. I don't need another one. You like Lena, though. I like Lena to an extent. It's villainous Luthors that I can't take. <laughs> <laughs> so when it was initially pegged as a villainous Luthor, I'm like, oh, no, don't do this but then when you get into the motivation and what's happened to him the reason that he's actually going to Lois Lane to find out about this world Superman to find out what's going on to probe for information all the motivations become a lot clearer and it becomes really interesting what they do that dynamic and again they don't go the obvious path again you get Clark deciding yeah release him let him out. He doesn't need to be locked up. In fact, he can stay in my barn. It goes to that complete opposite end of the scale. It's like, let him out. Let him be free. In a traditional season, he would have been your villain for pretty much the whole season. That would have been enough. Never mind the Morgan Edge plot. Someone's out to take out Superman and meanwhile there's other stuff going on that's distracting him, that's making him more vulnerable. That would have been it. The discovery of Clark's secret would have been used as a weapon rather than as a tool to bring him back or as a way of connecting mm. to John. That would have been the traditional art. Would have been actually he finds out that Superman has two sons, he can hold them hostage or he can do something to make Superman vulnerable. Get that air Superman. So yeah. yeah, I thought that worked really well. It went down avenues that I definitely wasn't expecting. <laughs> and again, that's how it impressed me. It did stuff that I wasn't sitting there. A lot of the times when I watch these shows, I'm like, oh, I can tell what's going to happen next. And a lot of the time it does. The show just kept proving me wrong with lots of aspects. And that was one of them. His interaction with Jonathan, because Jonathan watched the video and saw what happened and the discussions around that, I thought worked. With Lois as well, the feelings that he's had for an 
alternate version of her. That confusion, but at the same time, that sudden understanding of why he was doing what he was doing, it worked. And bringing him in on the secret to get him on board to giving Clark a chance to win over the brainwashing, for want of a better term. I can't remember what the name of the machine was. The MacGuffin machine. The Eradicator. The Eradicator. There we go. To win over the Eradicator that was trying to overwrite him. The bit I loved was that he got to save Lois in the end with the hammer throw. The big hammer throw where it just got charged in time. He just threw it. And he gets a nice kick-ass line as well. He gets a, I never miss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Just really well executed. I mean, I talked about that moment earlier on where the boys are sitting watching TV and Lois Lane is reporting from that rooftop that we've seen in the footage before in John's van. And it's all mimicking, apart from the fact that it's Lar floating ominously behind her. It's basically mimicking that thing before. Yeah, it mirrors it perfectly. It mirrors perfectly up until the moment where he manages to save her. And the fact that he gets to save at at that moment just fits, that works, that brings him full circle. That by the end of this story, he's got to do what he couldn't do on his earth and he's managed to save it for now ominous um, you know, he's managed to save it for now kind of thing i think it was a good arc for him a really good arc and wasn't as predictable as i did have expected in other shows yeah he definitely had to accept the fact that his world was gone and this one was different and there are things he can do to protect it and the fact that he manages to save lois under similar circumstances is a big indicator of that it was really good from the side of clark as well once he understood who john irons was and understood what the history was and found out about his evil doppelganger in this other universe where he says other than the black suit this guy is me and it's this consistent idea that clark is worried about his capacity to go too far And they don't explain how the whole Superman situation on the other Earth works, what caused him to flip out, whether he was a hero before and betrayed them or whether he just appeared as a villain, we don't know. But my headcanon until told otherwise is that the loss of Martha was what maybe broke him and left him vulnerable to the Eradicator on that Earth, I guess. Again, I don't know, because the show doesn't really tell you. I imagine it will later. I think Evil Superman will be a villain, Mm. if not next season, then relatively soon in a couple of seasons or whatever. I don't think we've seen the last of that Evil Superman. But I think the whole point is this Superman turned evil because he doesn't have any tethers to his human life, so he maybe lost Jonathan, obviously his father, when he was young. And then he lost Martha. You would guess maybe around about the same time. I don't know. It's another Earth, whenever. He Hmm. would lose Martha, but he doesn't have Lois. He doesn't have the kids. So he doesn't have anything to ground him, doesn't have any of that support necessarily. So maybe that's what just caused him to lose it and turn evil or become vulnerable enough to be corrupted. We don't know. Again, they didn't tell us. But the idea that Clark sees that, it's like, no, I do get where he's coming from. And we need to treat it this way rather than treat him as a villain. And he does try to be friends with him. And as you say, you've got that point where John talks him down. John talks him into fighting back, but he doesn't do it in the way of, you're strong enough, you have that power inside you, you're better than this person. He takes it from the point of view of, no, we've all lost people, suck it up and get on with it. You've got a family at home, you have to be there for them. Just get on with it. It's not a pep talk, it's tough love. And that fit his character, that fit 
the situation. We've seen those kinds of conversations a million times in the Arrowverse, haven't we? Where Barry will run in and be like, no, you're better than this. Don't sink to their level or whatever. Whereas John is just, come on, Superman. Don't be such a pansy. Just fight this guy. (laughs) So that was a nice, refreshing take on that trope that we've seen a million times. And it suits them and it solidifies that bond of trust between them as well. And then you've got the whole Natalie situation, the daughter, who is kind of a half-sister to Jonathan and Jordan, but not as well, because another Lois is their mother. So it's really there. With the season ending with Natalie's appearance, I think they will treat her as family. I think they will try and appeal to her as family. And I think Lois will become a sort of surrogate mother figure to her. And John will be conflicted over all that. You've got brothers, but they're from another universe, kind of. It's weird, confusing, but also they can be your family. I think they'll go down that route. Yeah, it depends on how they do with secret telling at the beginning and how open that is. Because again, I'm not expecting the show to go down the predictable arc with how that conversation potentially would end up. But yeah, Lois being a surrogate mother, but also having to toe the line with going, I'm not your mum and I don't have the same experiences as your mum and that conversation things that the other Lois might like she might not and there's that line there's that friction that's potentially going to be there it depends on if they decide to stay in Smallville or not or anything like that it's just an interesting dynamic and presumably a reason for her appearance maybe taking her dad back or is it a warning that's what I find interesting about is she coming in advance of something as a warning or is she coming to rescue John and take him back was what John did ultimately successful. Yeah, we're in a context-free zone there. We don't. Know. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. There's lots of paths that they can go down with this, and the show has definitely earned my trust. I've kind of waxed lyrical about it for a while now, so they've definitely got my trust going into it, and I'm assuming that they've got plans of what they're wanting to do with it. They've not just thrown it in. Yeah, and you do have that explanation in the final episode where John says, no, I'm not staying because you look like my wife, but you're not her, and I can't deal with that i'm uncomfortable with it so there is definite scope to be you look exactly like my mother but in a lot of ways you're nothing like her so that's difficult for me to deal with they can expand on that and they can play around with that in different ways and then they had that bit earlier in the season where they were going to call their third child natalie and lois had the miscarriage and she was in therapy about that as well so even though i said we didn't get the therapy scenes with sarah we did with lois in relation to that miscarriage and her difficulty processing that even all these years later, she still suffers from that. And I guess learning that another her in another universe had a daughter and called her Natalie was a bit too much to handle. So there's all that to play with as well. I think the emotional grounding for this is very strong already, even though we've not had word one of what they're going to do next season yet. It's very, very strong so far. Got all the ingredients there for a really good cake, so to speak. Yeah, John, great character. No, totally. Really well done. Yeah, and I like the friendship that him and Clark develop where they're like fist bumping when they're fighting people and stuff like that. It's really good. <laughs> it's a good bit of development. It's that trust that they've found. It's the fact that through the whole thing, it goes from John wanting to completely wipe out Superman because he's a threat to beginning to understand Superman, to beginning to understand Clark, and also that relationship working from Clark's point of view where actually he realises the point of view that 
John is coming from. He gets a taste of how he could be corrupted and he knows how much damage he could do because he's holding in his power a lot of the time. He's not working at full pelt. He knows how destructive he could be. He knows how tempting it could be to unleash that. And he knows that John would be the person to reliably push the button if he needed to. He says, I want you to be the person that controls the kryptonite arsenal. If there's a threat and if I need put down or if kryptonians need to put down, I'm trusting you with the keys to that particular armory. You alone will have that decision. That is an incredibly trusting move. That's a big development on that character because, again, we've talked about this not being on the same earth or not on the same timeline because the fact that there was still kryptonite on earth was a massive issue in Supergirl. And in Batwoman for some reason. (laughs) Batwoman. <laughs> there was a big thing about secret kryptonite, kryptonite weapons, all that sort of stuff. And in this, it's not glossed over, but it is kind of along the lines of, well, uh, I knew you'd have some somewhere. Although it's synthetic kryptonite here, isn't it? It's the fake stuff, Earth. isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. guess. So it's the artificial thing. Because you have that bit where Clark inhales the gas and it affects him in ways that kryptonite hasn't before. That hilarious scene where he's all bruised in the kitchen and Lois is like, what happened? He's like, it was just bullets, just normal bullets. What's good? I just laughed so much because of just how confused he was. It's like, I was just shot by multiple bullets from machine guns. It was nothing. He's <laughs> like, well, it would be nothing at Superman. But it's just how casually he says that. I just find that hilarious. But whatever it is, it's something that can hurt him and he trusts John with it. And that trust feels earned because of the work they put into making them get to that point as characters. Yeah. Great stuff. Absolutely great stuff. And on the Superman uh, or Clark worried about his potential to flip out, it's something that I think the show does very well. It's that scene where the kryptonite weapons first get deployed and you see him and he's crouched down, he's looking really angry, his eyes are red and he gets right in the face of that soldier and says, stand down and all that stuff. It just shows you the restraint he has to apply every single day of his life when he's dealing with this sort of stuff. I mean, it's not kryptonite all the time, but he's always dealing with things that will piss him off. Because again, this show works really hard to humanise Clark Kent and he has to keep up that Superman image. But there's a couple of moments where he almost loses it. And he admits that when Zod was possessing him, trying to take him over, he was tempted to just give in and unleash all his power as well. So he has those thoughts, he has those urges, he has those difficult moments where he just wants to cut loose, but he he knows he can't, and he works really hard to maintain that. Whereas I've seen previous versions of Superman where it's quite casual, he doesn't ever seem tempted to just unleash the full extent of his power, or in the case of the Henry Cavill version, he just doesn't pull his punches ever. He's just throwing people through walls and knocking down buildings (laughs) and things like that. But this version, he is working really hard to contain himself. And it's that internal struggle. Because if you did have that level of power, you would be tempted, potentially. And I like that they don't have him just as this infallible paragon of virtue who's always in perfect control. I love that humanisation of him. It's that struggle being the opposite way around. The struggle is reining it in and keeping it proportionate rather than letting loose, because letting loose would be the easiest bit. The struggle is keeping it under control all the time. And it works great as a sort of foil to what he's telling Jordan as well. Telling Jordan to keep it under control and don't let it loose. And he's acknowledging the fact that he's got that same potential. I forgot about the scene with the soldiers and I should have written it down because it was kind of one of my favourite scenes earlier on in the season. It's him protecting as, as much as, I can't remember the character's name, the boy's name, as much as he's not Kryptonian, he's been affected by the 
It's not dormant kryptonite. Yellow kryptonite? What do they call it? X-kryptonite. X-kryptonite. There you go. He's been affected by the X-kryptonite and Jordan firing on it, and it's given him the powers. At that point, he's realising that that could have been Jordan out there who's being hunted by the military with kryptonite bullets. The bit I liked about that as well is he gets shot by a kryptonite bullet and he rips it out, throws it into the wall and lasers it, blows up. I love that so much from the point of view I was like, oh good, so it's not every time a tiny bit of kryptonite appears in a room that Clark's going to be rolling about on the floor. I think I'm just so used to Smallville to that extent, where it was, at the beginning especially, it was any tiny piece of meteor rock, and that was it. (laughs) He gets stabbed by it in the first episode as well, doesn't he? John stabs him. Yeah, because it was the guns and the bullets and things, I'm like, oh, this is going to tear him to bit. Oh, no, it isn't. They establish that that is not enough. It weakens him, yeah, but it doesn't incapacitate him. Exactly. If, if you kept going and all of them kept firing and kept going, it would be an issue. If it's one person firing it, it's not an issue, which I liked. But yeah, the scene overall, the fact that he was protecting the kid and doing that, it just worked really well for me, that one. So uh, well remembered, because I'd forgotten to write that one down. And that was the one directed by Suds, who I interviewed as well. So. Hmm. We had a good discussion about that, but yeah, the look on that soldier's face is <laughs> the Superman was in his face, red eyes, angry at him. It was, oh my God, I'm going to get my head ripped off here or something. And it could easily happen, but the point is Clark won't let that happen. He needs to calm himself down and he's willfully calming it down. Whereas it would have been so easy to just have him be like, oh, whatever, it's a kryptonite bullet, stop it. Or he takes the gun and snaps it or something like that, but just kind of shrugs and whatever else. I do like that it was no, this is difficult. I really want to punch this guy. But if I punch this guy, I will cave his face in, so I shouldn't do it. Just a great little character beat. Again, very human Superman, and I love that. It's fresh, it's new, it's interesting. So what were your thoughts on Sam? I thought he was a good character in some cases, but in others he was kind of there as a performative antagonist of sorts. He was there to disagree with them. He was there to judge their life choices. He was there to create problems that didn't really need to exist i did like how jonathan had to keep reminding him of what the right thing to do was i thought that was very good where he just calls him out on it constantly the bit where clark's like well this is my family i'm making this decision lois doesn't want to speak to him sometimes i can't be bothered speaking to my dad today i just don't have the strength the problems he causes the first few episodes where he's turning up to speak to clark about problems kind of bring in the military consultant. It gives you a version of the dynamic that we have in almost every other hour of air show where the hero's out in the field and there's someone sitting there on a computer looking at a map telling them about what's happening. It's a version of that, but it also keeps Superman autonomous from that, I think. There was episodes where I really liked Sam and then there was episodes where I was thinking, you're just here to be the other side of this argument, but I don't understand why you're the other side of this argument. That's interesting. I kind of agree with you. A bit of it was, well, we need someone giving them intel. We need the satellite guy. We need the communication. And it kind of made sense for it to be Sam Lane doing that side of it. I think that bit of conflict that you're talking about is one of the reasons that we see him get to that point of retirement at the end of the season. It's that conflict between doing what his oath says, doing what is right for the country or for the world under that unit that he's in control of at that point, or keeping his family's secret and the cross between those two and the fact that he was building those kryptonite weapons that could harm not just Clark, but 
actually turns out his grandkids or how close he came to having to order Clark's death, that kind of thing. It showed that conflict between country and what he had to do for his family, what he had to do to support Lois. Sometimes, yeah, he did come across as a bit generic military general. It didn't have some of the nuance that we've seen in the other relationships, but I think they did so well with everything else, I definitely forgive them with it. There was odd lines, I think, when he was over for dinner at the farm. You kind of get the, he's not in their life much. They keep the two sides very separate. He's always off doing something and probably has more interaction with Clark than he does with Lois. That's the impression that I was getting. When I'm saying he's interacting with Clark, he's more interacting with Superman at that particular point, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it's all business, isn't it? It's all business. He's used to giving orders and getting stuff done. When it comes to family life, he doesn't have that ability. She doesn't need to take his orders, and also Superman doesn't need to deal with his nonsense either. He's risen to a point in the military where no one's going to tell him no, but his daughter will tell him no, Superman will tell him no, and eventually the grandkids are also telling him no. Or one of them, anyway. Or one of them, anyway, is telling them, though. I found there were some interesting bits in there, but yeah, it's like his sense of duty and his connection to the family and what he could do right. How long he would stay in retirement? I don't know. That seems to me as someone that will not enjoy his retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because he's going to do it for family and whatever. They did establish that there was a bit of a fracture in his relationship with Lois. And do they not discuss about the whole, well, I always thought you were capable of taking care of yourself, so I didn't really involve myself as much. But Lois is like, no, no, I still needed you. And you weren't really there. And Lois has a sister, certainly in the comics. I can't remember if she's ever been mentioned in any either this show or the other shows she appears in. But there's Lucy Lane. So I wonder if Lucy will show up and give us a bit more context to that family dynamic. But Lois's mother died years prior as well. That's mentioned. So there's the idea that Sam is an overwhelmed single dad and didn't really know what to do. So he ran it like a military operation. And that was mentioned. And Lois was, oh no, yeah, they do mention the sister, don't they? Because Lois talks about how she had to take charge because he was never there. It's a slight mirror of Clark's relationship with his sons at the start of the season. Because he's never there too for the same reasons, really. He's off pursuing a higher responsibility in inverted commas. And it's the same level of understanding of, oh no, we both know that we're needed elsewhere and that our families take second string and Clark's trying to get away from that and trying to think, no, no, my family are my number one priority now. Maybe you should think like that too. And he does get there Mm. by the end when he goes into retirement, but there's that tension throughout and him and Lois, they finally have a discussion that seems to smooth it over, but it seems like it's a very quick resolution to something that was cultivated over years of animosity and so on, but it kind of worked. And yeah, I liked Sam. I never found that he was pointless. I just found that sometimes You're just here to argue. That's all you exist to do. (laughs) I did particularly love when Jonathan would call them out on everything. They weren't letting Sarah in to see the possessed Kyle. It's like, come on, it's her dad. Stop being such an uptight military guy and do what's right. And then when Sam says to Jonathan about having to potentially put Clark down and Jonathan just jumps down his throat, he just won't accept it. That was a really good dynamic. I liked it when he showed up to get the twins at the party and they're like what's going on why are the military still in town it's like, i'm not going to tell a bunch of drunk teenagers <laughs> military secrets <laughs> he was a believable military presence and you get the impression that he has superiors to appease and they're expecting certain things and that he has to toe the line a bit 
And you have this bit where Clark is like, well, I'm helping you, not the other way around sort of idea. So you can't control me as Superman. Whereas Sam kind of had it in his head that Superman was a resource when he isn't. I mean, he is, obviously, because he can go in and do stuff, but it's not a resource that he has any control over, really. It's only when their objectives align. Yeah, especially when they're having the conversation of, well, you can't just sit here and ignore when the buzzer goes kind of thing. We'll still need to call you to help out. You can't just abandon everyone because you want to spend more time with the family. You've got to still be available. What are you expecting us to do? There's a definite element of that to it. Yeah, he will have superiors to please. I like the elements of him interacting with town. It showed the complexities of, we're here to help you. We can't tell you why we're here to help you, but we're here (laughs) to help you. Believe me, we're not just wasting our time with it. The interaction with the grandsons when he takes them to the party, yeah, very believable. The bit of that that I didn't quite believe was actually the way Jordan and Jonathan acted in that situation, which was, we're just going to ignore the call from the military general who never calls us. That was the bit where I was like, really? You've learned a lot over the last few months of how serious the situations can be. And you're ignoring the call from the military general. That's the sign that there's a problem going on, guys. Minutes after we almost saw our mother be murdered on live television as well. Minutes after this has been going on and everything else that's happening, we're going to ignore that phone call that could be warning us that there's a problem or something going on. That didn't quite sit right with me. Yeah, you get the kind of fun of them interrupting the party and it works for what obviously happens next with Edge and everything, but that was one of the bits where I was like, that just doesn't quite seem to click. They've understood the seriousness of everything else. Why would they suddenly decide, oh, we're just going to ignore this potential call? But maybe that's a life lesson. If they're truly showing the development of these characters, which they seem to be committing to, maybe that's a sign that in future they would not ignore a call like that. Yeah, they're teenagers. Yeah. Even they say the line at the time, I think it's, oh, let's be teenagers for one night or one day or one afternoon or whatever the line is. And it's like, okay, that's kind of believable. But at the same time, they know how big the stakes are. They're not like the other teenagers that are there who are partying away because the parents are distracted with being angry at the military. So they've got an empty house. They're taking advantage of it while the rest of the town are away at this protest and getting angry. Jonathan and Jordan actually know what's going on. They've got the full story. Yeah. And I think Sam was far better than Jorel, but Jorel was a resource. He wasn't really a character. They tried to mm. give us that connection through Clark saying that he got closer to his father. And we'll definitely need to find some way to talk about the flashback episode because it's an important one. But you've got that bit where Clark goes to him to update him on his life milestones. I'm going to be a father. I'm getting married. I'm whatever. And jor played by Angus McFadgen, who doesn't do a very good job, really, interviewed him as well as part of a roundtable situation in the show notes. He played Robert the Bruce, and that was what I was interviewing him in conjunction with. So jor not great as a presence he was there to fix problems really but i do like when jordan's powers first manifested and it was Jorel told me that i'm never going to amount to anything my powers are too weak humans and kryptonians don't mix in that way and jonathan says i don't care what hologramps had to say i love that description of <laughs> hologramps <laughs> but you did have that thing where Jorel is killed in effect Mm. the ai is destroyed by morgan edge and clark buries it like he would a family member because that's the only connection he has to that father figure. And it mirrors the loss of Martha earlier in the season. And it also marks a point where Clark now has no parental figure to draw on. He has to proceed on his own. He has to figure everything else out on his own. He has Sam, but that's not really a parental figure as such. Maybe it'll become a bit like that, but it's an important step forward that Clark is now on his own. He's a father that has to blaze his own trail. Any problem that comes up, he has to solve somehow on his own. 
with the resources available to him. So he doesn't have any experience from parental figures that have been through it before to draw on anymore. Yeah, it was a really interesting aspect. And it was one of those things where at the time when the AI was destroyed, I thought this should be more significant. And I guess it was because it was tied up with so much other going on. So I was really glad when they circled back to it in the final episode with the burial and with his moment in the fortress. It showed that it was actually significant and it was something, and I I guess it was a time thing for earlier on and with the pacing of everything else that was going on. So it was good that they returned to it. Yeah, there wasn't time to grieve. There was too much everything else, yeah. There wasn't time to grieve and there wasn't time to give it room because of everything else. And now he was able to do it and able to approach it the way that the whole family sort of arranged it. I thought was a nice touch. They knew that he had went to fetch the pieces and then they decided to do the burial. It's true, he's not got the father figures anymore or people with experience. So that will be interesting and i'm wondering if the likes of sam retiring potentially lingering about at the beginning of the next season if something like that is going to potentially kick in a little bit possible when he's needing advice from someone no experienced or who's been through the ringer a bit i don't know i'm trying to think of who he would go to for that sort of advice but yeah it'll be interesting to see what they do Kara must have a few family holograms he could borrow <laughs> he could go to argo city and ask his aunt lives there <laughs> you can speak to john jones you can speak to yeah that's the list you know yeah but the whole point is he's a proper adult now without any parental resource and they do underscore how important that parental resource is they don't do much with his earth father because you just find out that he dies and then you see the aftermath of it but the fact that martha's the one to push him to go and learn about his heritage learn about krypton learn about his potential encourages him to be a hero all that stuff I really liked that approach. She sat with him at the train station as he was reluctant to leave and encouraged him to go out and not worry about her because she could handle life without him and he needs to find his own way, that kind of stuff. It shows how important in his own development that these parent figures have been. And in that flashback episode, when he goes to Jorel to celebrate his accomplishments, celebrate his life's milestones, things like that. It is something that he clearly values in his life, so it's going to be a massive adjustment not having either of those things anymore. Yeah, and it was shown how powerful that family connection was and that influence of Jarell when obviously they did the comparison. Well, it was a smaller set of flashbacks, but when they did the Morgan Edge flashbacks in comparison to Clark's own, it sort of highlights the, I suppose, the nature-nurture kind of thing. It's that aspect of it as well. It added to that, I thought, and showed the influence. Oh, for sure. And naturally, this brings it on to Morgan Edge, which is the thing about the show that really didn't work consistently because they spent too long setting him up as just this boring CEO who was trying to ruin Smallville for some reason. And then he was creating a Kryptonian army for some reason. And again, you can still believe he's doing that as a CEO because Lex Luthor would be doing that sort of stuff. The previous version of Morgan Edge that we had on the show was kind of doing that sort of stuff. Not on this show, on Supergirl. The other one, played by Adrian Pastar. This is the same guy, apparently, but not post-crisis, whatever. <laughs> Crisis ruins everything. Different guy. He's now Kryptonian for some reason. They reveal that he's Clark's half-brother from Krypton. And usually when it's like, oh my God, a character that never had a secret brother now has a secret brother. Oh God, what are they going to do with this? And it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. Although it didn't break the show in the way that I was worried it would be because it just became a bit of a non-entity. 
But the most annoying thing about Morgan Edge as a character is that all the potential was there to make him a really engaging antagonist because you had those scenes where he was talking to the AI of his father and didn't want to go along with the plan that his AI father was forcing him to implement. Is the eradicator here yet? No, it isn't. Well, you're useless, etc. And he used torture him. And so there's verbal abuse, there's physical abuse, there's this toxic nature to this relationship and Edge, his real name's Tal Rowe, I think, but I'm just going to call him Edge because it's easier. And he wanted something else out of life and he didn't seem to realise that all he had to do was just never go back to the fortress because what's the AI going to do? It doesn't seem to be like the AI in Smallville that could get him from wherever he happened to be. It seems hmm. confined to the fortress. So as long as he stays away from his fortress, he'll have no problems. But he does say that he has a desire to reach out to Clark and to tell him that he has someone else out there and to give him that family connection because he also wants that family connection. I don't know if it's quite his final line, but one of his final lines is, all I wanted was a family, Cal. But it doesn't mesh up with what he was doing, the way he was behaving, how one note the character was written. It was also muddled and also just so chucked in the background. As funny as it was when he shows up to threaten the Kents at the farm, which prompts Clark to go with him. He's like, oh, it's just Uncle Morgan coming to visit. When he says something like that, that was actually really funny. Oh, yeah, he is. He is your uncle. And <laughs> it does tie into the theme of family. So revealing Edge to be a family member that he knew nothing about works on a thematic level. And then you have the whole idea of he feels that Clark should have that loyalty to him because they're blood. Whereas the show is telling you, no, you choose your own family. You find your own family. Your family is who supports you and who you're connected with, who you feel close with rather than who you're necessarily blood-related to, even though Clark's sons are obviously his blood relatives. But it's still the idea of, no, your family is something you work at, something you earn, something you develop and build on your own. Whereas Edge wanders in, he's like, Clark, you're my brother, therefore you owe me something. Or Cal, you're my brother, you owe me something, because you're my brother, that kind of thing. So there was all that, that was all great on a conceptual level. On an execution level, they drop the ball constantly because there's just not enough time and it takes so long to get the reveal of him being Kryptonian and then after that there's no time to really do much with it so by the time you get to the final episode what else can happen other than a bit of a light show and then he gets defeated yeah it became the generic Kryptonian villain towards the end and that was disappointing I think they could have done a lot more with the blood relation thing. I think they could have done more with flashback, strangely. I'd have liked to have seen him try and approach before, or a reason that he's not reached out. Because like you say, you get the juxtaposition in the original flashback, which is when he arrives on Earth, he gets found, he gets experimented on, all sorts. He does not live in a nice farmhouse in the country and get love. And then when he finds his fortress or founds his fortress, his dad isn't particularly loving either, torches him more. It's not that, oh, I've found the place where I'm supposed to belong. It's even more of the rhetoric that gets put on top. The moment where he comes in and he's betrayed because he says, I, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person here. You told me I was the only one. At that point, it seems that the moment that he should reach out, that would have been his bit. So I can't match up the all I want, he was a family and... I've never spoken to you until this point. I've completely ignored you up until now because I've been busy making other Kryptonians using this machine. The point to get Superman on board with your plan is not once you are 80% of the execution done. That's not the point in which to pitch the plan because he doesn't fully endorse his dad's plan until Clark dismisses him or Superman dismisses him at that point. So I didn't quite get his logic leap. I didn't understand if the whole point was family and connection and the breaking point 
in that flashback was when he found out he wasn't alone, then why didn't he speak to him at that point? What stopped him trying to find Superman at that point? Try and locate Clark, find out his real identity, communicate with him, do anything like that. He's a businessman. He's had the money to investigate. He's had the resources to try and track down or get someone to get a message to Superman if he wanted to. It (laughs) seems that he would have that ability. I don't know. Some of it didn't make sense from that point of view to me and that's why it was disappointing. I'm, I'm like you. I can see other paths or other avenues they could have gone through that would have explained the disconnection and they just either didn't have time to show it or they hadn't written it and they dropped the ball on this particular point. The multiple disposable Kryptonian-powered henchmen that drop in and out throughout also were kind of annoying, and it was kind of that there's waves and waves of them, but then they're all deactivated at the end anyway, so it's fine. There's an off switch for everyone. Their powers all time out, it's fine. Yeah, it's a very quick solution. Yeah, there's a lot of the, oh, it's all fine in the end. The other issues is there is a lot of destruction and stuff in Metropolis in this particular plot as well again there's a lot of destruction towards the end of this and i don't know if the show is going to go deeper into that or not because it's kind of glossed over a little bit at the end again and i found that very strange considering that that was one of people's issues with the henry cavill superman film the amount of destruction at the end of that i mean there's a good few tower blocks that go down during this closing fight yeah for sure and I guess the ramifications of that can be explored. They aren't here because they have to get back to the family stuff. But in terms of Edge as a character, everything was there. And it's almost if you're writing an academic essay and you've realised that you've kind of forgotten something and you try and shoehorn it in at the end of your essay just to mm-hmm. make sure that you cover it. It's almost like that where those flashbacks, oh yeah, that'll be enough, that'll do it. That'll sow the seeds of this family connection that he wants or whatever and it does but it's not enough it's too little too late and it's because they spend so much time with oh look he's a ceo and he's awful because he's a billionaire again it's a story they don't do a lot with but it's that billionaire savior the job creator myth that you find in a lot of things as in rich people they come in and they charitably offer us work because we need it from them we benefit from it rather than them benefiting from us doing a job that kind of backwards way of thinking And obviously it's the whole point of Smallville is willing to accept anything at this point. Morgan Edge wanders in, he's like, I'm going to give you all jobs because I'm such a benevolent CEO, I'm such a benevolent billionaire, I'm going to give you all jobs and you're going to matter again. And it's not strong enough, really. And I think there was a real opportunity to explore how he was corrupting the people of Smallville as well. Obviously he had the whole, he was grooming them to accept Kryptonian consciousness, which is a bit of a woolly plot in itself. But you had that Emily character, the one that Lana convinces to join that executive program, whatever it's called. She would have been a great case study. You would get to see her join it. You would get to see her going through whatever that program involves and somehow be convinced that going through that machine is the right thing to do. And then you see her just lose herself at the talent show where she storms off and Kyle losing himself. Kyle could have been another case study, but he was also something else. Within the show anyway, he had a different purpose. But at the same time, they don't give you any weight to these plots, so they just sort of happen. And then suddenly half the town has powers, because you see them all take off at the end. It's how many people have gone through this? I thought it took ages. (laughs) I thought you only had a few henchmen. And the thing is, you didn't need that many anyway. You only need a few. You only need a handful of them to make your point. And instead you've got Clark flying up with the Eradicator, and then he 
fires his heat vision at it and all the others fire their heat vision at it because they're brainless henchmen who don't realize that's a stupid idea. It's only Edge that realizes it's a stupid idea. Yeah, don't destroy my eradicator, folks. <laughs> what are you doing? That's not why I gave you powers. And it's established that Kryptonians are a peaceful people as well. So why are they all suddenly willing to follow Edge and do violent things? It's why are they willing to follow Edge and do violent things? They're meant to be the Kryptonians and those people. It's not meant to be those people as brainless henchmen. And he seems to be able to have the choice of who he plucks out of the machine so why is he not plucking the is it the war council that he pulls out at the end and his father and everyone that he pulls out in the second to last episode i'm trying to remember what they call themselves but it's the war council or something along those sides the kryptonian war council and lara as well she's in there isn't she their mum so why when he was picking people to bring back did he not immediately start with the generals rather than kind of disposable Kryptonian consciousness? I don't quite understand because there seems to be more to Lar than there is to the rest. She seems a bit more street smart and knows what the plan is and seems to be useful. But then all the other ones that he's pulled out are kind of not worth anything. And I guess they've got to not be that great because they've got to be taken down kind of single-handedly at that point. They've got no personality, that's the problem. Yeah, they've got no personality. They are disposable. They're weak at that point as well, Edgy's better plan, doing it my way, just doesn't seem to be that smart. And he seems to have had plenty time to work on it. So you're like, well, you should have put more effort into that than building your business empire, Morgan. Yeah. Well, they mentioned that Leslie Lahr, as she's known, she had another name. They found her real name, but I can't remember what it was. She had been possessed for so long that the person that she was was gone. So the original owner of that body was gone. And there's a real plot there about body horror, about control, about loss of self, loss of identity, all of that. And they just don't have time to cover it. It just becomes a generic villain plot. And then it starts off as being a very difficult and laborious process to prepare the bodies for these things. They have to be from Smallville. Although they do have that teenager i forget his name he has the powers but he doesn't seem oh no he does have the consciousness doesn't he because when clark confronts him the personality shifts and he's known as kal-el but up until that point he's just the teenager with powers so the consciousness takes hold eventually but it's established that that kid's not from smallville so it's not going to last and then once the powers wear off he suffers from those jitters and, and all that it was a bit weak but the ideas were all there they just didn't have the time to process them properly i think Having three Kryptonians would have been fine. That would have been more than enough. You didn't need dozens of them. As cool as the image of the blackened sky as they're all heading towards Clark was, it didn't need that many. And then by the end of the season, when the Eradicator was possessing Edge, when he was possessed of all the Kryptonian souls, he could just imbue whoever he pointed at immediately with powers. Although they do half-baked explain that in the final episode with they're not from Smallville therefore their powers won't last but still there's a lot of shifts between them a lot of changes I kind of felt that five or six or multiple Kryptonians should have been a problem for them it should have been a more severe problem than it appeared as much as some of that team up of capturing the Kryptonians one by one and calling it in for them to get picked up was kind of neat at the same time it seemed that that was way too easy a fix it kind of felt like this should be a major problem there's like five kryptonians they could all take off in the opposite directions well what's it john says metropolis fell in seven minutes or 11 minutes yeah there was like a line from john about how they just zipped through buildings and took the entire place down that could have happened there easily or 
one in Metropolis and one in any other city, be it in the United States or across the world. They've got Kryptonian powers that could be over there in minutes. They don't all need to cluster around Metropolis. There was bits of it that just seemed too clunky, but I think that's the thing from this show where some of the big villain stuff actually paled in comparison to the rest of the drama that I've talked about, the family stuff that we've talked about in the, some of the Smallville plot even. So I guess it was disappointing, but it was kind of made up for in other ways. As much as it was a major part of the season, it didn't completely detract from it. I was enamoured with so many other things that were happening on screen that I kind of glossed over certain points that I think I would normally give more of a kicking to. Yeah, I think it's that one weak aspect that wasn't as strong as the other stuff, but it seemed weaker because of how strong everything else was at the same time. Especially when they had all the potential there for that to be a really good connection to everything else that was going on, because you had the family side of it, you had the loss side of it, you had all of that. They could have really done some interesting stuff with it. And I've managed to segue as to the flashback episode, because the flashback episode is Morgan Edge trying to understand how Clark thinks pouring through his memories to understand what he's been through and try to figure out why he thinks the way he does, why he doesn't see the humans as a resource that he can exploit, why he doesn't consider himself above them, because Edge does consider himself to be a god that's better than all these humans, whereas Clark doesn't see himself that way. Clark sees himself as a guest on Earth in a way, and he sees himself as part of the human race, and he's part of a family, and he's not better than anybody else. He's just more powerful but that gives them that different responsibility. I love that flashback episode, and I suspect they did that episode because they knew this show was going to be heavily divorced from any other Superman story anyone might have seen. So they had to do this episode that, let's give you the familiar beats for one week. Let's do it once. Let's give you them at the Daily Planet, them flirting with each other, the dichotomy between Clark and Superman and Lois's relationship to both sides of this identity. Let's give you all that. Let's give you those things that could essentially be what this TV show was, but isn't. I love that episode. And it's not that that's what I wanted the show to be, because I'm perfectly happy with what the show is. But I also just like seeing that take on those earlier years, how they built up to this point. I thought it was a neat way of them doing it. I really liked it. I'm with you. It was nice to have a break from what was going on, but to show you that more traditional side of it. Give them an origin story. Give them more of an origin story, because we've seen a little bit of that through Supergirl. We saw a little bit of her origin and her thing. We've never seen Clark's side. So getting that little pick through his life, it was a neat way of them bringing that in. And I suppose giving us some of that story that we wouldn't have had otherwise. I suppose it's similar to, for example, things like Tom Holland Spider-Man. We're not going to show you the full origin wraparound or anything like that because we know you know this story. You know the main beats of this. But here it is in this particular context. Here's a little bit of their background. We're not going to show you the entire thing. We're not going to go through an entire TV show going through it. You've had Smallville before. You've had Superman films before. You've had other things that have gone in-depth into the story. Let's show you another side, which I think is what we said at the beginning makes this show really interesting, is it's going way further in his life than any of the other movies or TV shows have. I know that they've explored it way more in the comics than they have on any other media, really. So I really liked seeing that. And then, like I said earlier on, the juxtaposition between that and what Morgan Edge went through. There was little interesting details in there as well, especially pertaining to the Lois and Clark connection, because Lois isn't that impressed by Superman. She sees him as being a bit of a showboat 
just saving people but not really thinking about any bigger picture because she talks about some Nazi arsonist or whatever that he's essentially ignoring and Clark doesn't even know about it because he's naive. He's just being heroic. He's just flying around and quote-unquote saving cats from trees. You don't see him do that, but he's doing what he can. He's just getting involved and he's not really thinking about that there's a criminal element in Metropolis that you could be doing more about. And he learns how to tackle that more as a journalist. And Lois shows him that when she does that interview with him as Superman, and she's clearly not impressed by how in your face he is, I suppose, how naive he seems to be. And she admits in that same scene to whoever it was, her friend or colleague or whoever, that she's been going out with Clark for a while and she totally loves him. And she's completely drawn to Clark because of his values, because of his ethics, because of the way that they connect on different things because of the way he cares about similar things that she does. It's unusual because normally it's Clark that gets ignored and Superman's the one that Lois is focusing on. I'm flipping it around this way. In previous editions of Superman stuff, it's more that Clark Kent is this disguise that Superman wears sometimes. Whereas here, Clark Kent is the person and Superman is a part of who he is. And in that episode anyway, he's trying to figure himself out as Superman and he doesn't have all the answers. Whereas Lois teaches him that there's a bigger picture that he needs to be paying attention to. And he learns that as he goes. And then obviously they get married and they have kids and whatever else. And I really liked when the Edge reveal happened in the flashback. You get a couple of hints that there's something not quite right there. There's like a ghost image, I think, early on that he sees. And when he walks away to speak to Morgan Edge and Lois is still reacting to him, even though he's not there in the memory, that was really chilling and really cool. It was a nice touch on this whole brain trip thing. I think the context was important because it showed you how that relationship began. I think they skirted over some stuff, like not showing Clark revealing his identity to Lois for the first time. It happens off screen. Well, it doesn't happen off screen. You see the aftermath of it. You see her looking at him as he flies and takes his glasses off or whatever. And she's like, oh my God, what's this? But you don't really see how she reacts to it. So that was a bit of a misstep in that particular episode. But building their relationship from Clark as a civilian rather than from Clark as Superman was a really interesting, subtle change from what you might expect. That's really well put. Totally agree with you with that. I liked the interview scene. The bit that made me laugh was that she didn't know he had super hearing, so he was listening to the conversation. I'm, I'm trying to remember that <laughs> it was the person that's with her that froze it in. One of his powers isn't super hearing, by the way, is it? <laughs> It was very neat. Totally with you. I didn't think about it normally being the opposite way around, that Lois is interested in Superman rather than Clark. But you're right. I didn't think of it like that. But yeah, that's normally the way around, where Clark is more invisible at that point until further on. Yeah, if you think about the Christopher Reeve version, for example, Lois walks all over Clark and she's besotted with Superman. In Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, as it was known in the UK, it was very much that Clark was just her colleague for a while. And then Superman was someone that she was completely in love with. And Smallville, well, they don't ever get the chance to do that because Smallville is just its own weird little thing. The animated series is that as well. And in the comics, it's that for a while. It's that whole idea that Clark is just this presence in her life that she just ignores. And that's not the case here. They connect very quickly. I do think it's quite funny also in that episode when He's interviewed by Perry White. We won't pay you well. That's fine. There'll be no overtime. That's fine. You have to pick up my dry cleaning. That's fine. It's almost that white privilege, isn't it? Where all I have to do is say that I really want a job and I'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very strange, that interview. I have no experience, yeah. but I'm willing to do whatever you want. And I'm white, so hire me, thanks. We're not hiring. We've got no money. We've actually not got a role for you whatsoever. That's fine. I'll work here anyway. <laughs> it's like, what? 
So, hang on. How are you paying to live here? How's this working? <laughs> they kept Jimmy Olsen conspicuously off screen in that episode as well. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. The only person that takes a photo is Clark <laughs> in that episode. <laughs> Where's Jimmy? No sign of Jimmy. Makeup Brooks didn't want to do it. Or they'd have to make him less ripped. <laughs> You'd imagine he'd be less ripped at that point. Love the costume as well. The classic 1930s costume. And he's like, my mom made it. And... I do like how goofy he is as Superman in that episode as well, when he's just so naive. I'm just here to help. I'm here to save people, whatever. And Lois is like, Superman's an idiot because he doesn't understand that there's a gang war happening underneath the streets and there's some Nazi arsonist out there and whatever. That's really good stuff. And you could base a show around that. That's actually several seasons worth of content almost. But at the same time, I don't really want to see it because I feel like I've seen riffs on it before. So I'm happy with this enhanced future look at what Superman can be when he has a family and so on. Yeah, there's the potential for them to do some form of flashback stuff or other tell-me-a-tale-of-when kind of story or someone coming back from the past and needing a story told. I don't know. An old villain has surfaced, and that's like that case we worked 20 years ago. or Not 20 years, 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah, that reminds me of that thing that you had to look into and this happened and that happened and following it that way. There's the potential for them to do a bit of that. I did like the fact that she pointed out that he was dealing with symptoms rather than the true disease or the true rot that was going on you've stopped that shooting or you've stopped that robbery but you've not stopped the people that are sending them out to do the robbery or the reason that they're going out and robbing banks or whatever it's curing symptoms but not the rest so yeah that's true and the sort of realization that there were two ways to go about it again it's kind of what we touched on earlier on where he sort of barreling in head first yeah it can be used as a blunt instrument to solve this particular problem but in order for the true resolution to come around it had to happen through the press or through the media and public attention and then that resolves some of the problems it's giving value to the civilian side of it and obviously it gives value to lois as well because otherwise she just finds out information before superman goes and solves the problem which is kind of boring but you have situations where lois is the one to solve the problem and there's a couple of instances in the show itself of where it's her journalistic flair that manages to solve the problem clark isn't even involved so it's making lois relevant when she might otherwise not be and As I said, I do love that she's drawn to Clark rather than Superman. I just really appreciated that. I know I've mentioned it like three times already. I was really impressed by that and it was really in touch. Yeah, it was kind of quick that we don't get to see her reaction to finding out they're one and the same. You can't be Superman. Superman's an idiot. (laughs) That could be an interesting (laughs) reaction. And it's, you're going to be a dad and all that stuff. Yeah, it was really good. It was a very quick one, but it was really good to get that context. And it didn't feel like they were just filling a gap in the season or anything like that. The context felt relevant. It was good stuff. Yeah, it felt it was an earned episode at that point. They had earned my trust and everything by then to do it. But if they'd done it a bit earlier on, I would have been like, oh, why are you doing this? Exactly. I think we've pretty much covered it. Is there anything that you had noted down that we haven't mentioned that you want to talk about? Because I think we've covered most of it i think i probably inappropriately put all my stuff about the look of the show up at the beginning where we were talking about characters so <laughs> I've, I've probably uh, we jump around water structures we jumped around i think i've covered the majority of what i wanted to say to be honest i think we've managed to do it yeah we did it the definitive take on superman and lois season one. <laughs> until we stop <laughs> recording and then i go oh yeah there was that bit where uh, i should have mentioned that yeah i should have mentioned this bit or that bit. yeah i think we've waxed lyrical enough really yeah yeah just looking at my notes i think i've mentioned everything there's things that i feel like i haven't mentioned but i definitely have imparting good values and the themes and stuff so we've picked up the themes as we've been going oh one thing that i am forgetting about is clark 
as Superman. We have just talked about how he doesn't treat the disease. He only deals with the symptoms early on. But then you do get little bits and pieces of his approach to being Superman. So how important he sees accountability. And that interview he gives at the end of the season, which is an excuse for a monologue about Smallville is a town that is built on people and people helping each other and old-fashioned community spirit and whatever. But it's actually an important point he's making about standing up in front of those people and explaining the truth to them. And it's that whole, yeah, there was this thing called the Eradicator. It was putting Kryptonian souls inside your people. It's really weird and complicated. And it's very difficult to explain. It's not a threat now, though. I've dealt with it. I'm really sorry that we lied to you. I'm really sorry that we didn't tell you the truth. But I'm telling you the truth now. And it's Superman is a public figure. Superman is someone that people trust because he is honest with them. He will stand up at press conferences and explain what happened. He will open up about the truth of a situation. He will be as upfront as he claims to be. And that's something he's learned to be. And obviously he has to learn that with the kids to be upfront with them. It's weird that he's honest to Superman, but Clark Kent's a compulsive liar in a way because he's had to lie about his identity, get through his job. He's lied to his kids for a decade and a half or however long it is. And it's created this rift between them that they work on throughout the season. There wasn't a lot of him just doing the post-mortem as Superman, talking to the press or whatever afterwards, but it was important to get it in there and they did get that in there at the end and it was effective. No, it's true. It was a good scene and a good point to have that voiceover over the town. And it was interesting because at the beginning it could have been either Clark or Superman that was talking about Smallville at that point. The line, does it worry you that it's going to make people scared of other Kryptonians and stuff? I thought it was interesting. It worked as a thing and it shows that he does speak, or Superman does speak as a public figure still. It's interesting that you see that early interview. We've talked about the interview in the flashback, but then you don't get the idea of how often does Superman speak to the press? Does he ever speak to the press, or does he get in, get stuff done, and go? Is he one for making public addresses? Because very often the thing is, I'm not here to preach or tell people how to do what they do kind of thing. He won't talk to the press. So I thought that was an interesting little bit as well. Yeah. And they establish in Supergirl when he first appears that he likes to stop and say hello after he saved people and things. Mm. Which, yeah, it's heroic. And the thing that they forget about, certainly in the Snyder Cut or whatever, is that Superman is a person and he is a hero for a reason and he has values that he holds dear. He stands for truth and justice. Part of standing for truth and justice is having that accountability. So explaining when something that he's involved in has gone wrong or impacted people and giving people that peace of mind and telling them the truth and giving them something to believe in and aspire to. Because if Superman's just flying in and defeating someone and then flying off without explaining things, then how are you really going to trust him as a heroic figure? In order to be the man of tomorrow, in order to be that trusted figure, he has to have a voice. He has to be using that voice. So he does. And we see that in the show. And that's good. Hopefully we'll see more of it. Well, we're getting a second season. Yay. Yes. And the second season seems to be picking up on a bit of a blank slate, other than the Natalie plot. Everything else is kind of resolved. The Cushings are all back together. Lois and Clark are on good footing. Jonathan and Jordan have it figured out a bit. So all the problems are essentially solved at the moment. That was the only thing about that final episode, is it had a kind of Lord of the Rings thing to it, where it was lots of endings, lots of wrapping up of, and then there's another scene where, and then there's another scene where, and then there's another scene where. And the only thing that seemed to hint at the next season was the arrival 
scene at the end, you know, the ship landing. I don't know if that was that we've only had one season. We don't know if we're commissioned for a second season. So we've got two options. We've either got to wrap everything up or we've got to leave stuff open. And I think they decided, right, we're going to wrap everything up, but we've got this one scene that we can throw in if we're not so they can move forward. That's the impression that I got. Yeah, and there is a suggestion that the Lara consciousness is still out there somewhere. I was surprised they didn't give her a body or something because she was in the Eradicator. So maybe that'll rear its head at some point. I did like the appearance of her in Lana's body earlier in the season. And I liked when she spoke to Lois and that's what's my son like? And she explains how the relationship is. I think there's more they can do there and maybe they will. Yeah, there definitely could have been a little bit more. I suppose that was a bit where, again, it was Clark saying potentially a goodbye. Hello and a goodbye, I suppose, at the same point, isn't it? It's another interesting one. Yeah, but I'm not sure what more there is to do there if they will do more with it. It was weird that they mentioned that she was in the Eradicator and then she didn't come out again at the end, especially because that's what Edge wanted. Yeah, but it kind of made sense not to pull her out because, like I say, at that end point, he's pulling out the War Council and she was someone who was against using the device despite the fact that she made it. She didn't make it to take over another world. So I don't think you would pull her out until you had completed the rest of the end game. Plus he was gone at that point as well. Yeah. And then you had the whole Edgy's father inside Jordan that they didn't do a lot with. It was just a thing that was happening. It was good the Clark having to deal with the fact that he had to fight his son being possessed by another Kryptonian. And then you had that Lois trying to relate to him to encourage him to be strong, which came across well enough, but it didn't really give you any more insight into that relationship, so it didn't work as well as it could have. I think with all the superhero-ish stuff, there was a rushed quality to quite a lot of it. Yeah, it didn't go fully in. It was more used as a distraction for Clark to keep Clark away from Smallville than it was used for anything else, was the possession. It didn't really play too much into the greater thing and it didn't last that long. I don't know if potentially it had been a little bit longer we might have got more out of it. I'm not too sure on that though. I think it was more like this is someone that Clark's going to have to pull his punches with. If it was another person taken over by a Kryptonian consciousness you can kind of let rip a little bit but when it's his own son you can't. He's got that hesitation that he wouldn't have against someone else. It wasn't the major issue it needed to be, I think, was the problem. Yeah, but there's potential for them again to play something with that next season, potentially, if it's not all fully resolved or whatnot. You never know. Yeah, we'll find out one way or another. But cool. So why don't you give us your wrap-up thoughts on the season? First season of Superman and Lois kind of similar to what I said at the beginning. I was really impressed with this as a first season. I've been burnt by first seasons of CW shows in the past. I know we're saying this is kind of a half CW, half something else production, but I think it was a really strong first season and hopefully they continue that into season two because historically a lot of these shows have had really strong initial seasons and then have went a bit wobbly further on. So hopefully they keep doing what they've been doing. Just strengthen your villain plot or your Superman plot, for want of a better term, going into the next season. Work on that. But stylistically, I love what it's doing. It's well acted. They've got a great cast on the go for it. They've set a good scene and now they can build on it, hopefully. And I don't think I can say more than I said at the beginning. I think they've done a bang-up job of it. Same. I loved the show pretty much from minute one. I thought it was great. Looks great. Cast are great. The storytelling is mostly great with the weaknesses that we've dug into over the last couple of hours, of course. But even at that, it didn't detract too much because everything else was so strong. They seem weaker by comparison. Whereas if everything else was on the par of the villain plot, you'd probably 
just feel it was much of a muchness, I guess, and maybe wouldn't enjoy the show as much. When you know it's capable of a high standard on a few pillars and one pillar is letting it down, it, it makes it a little bit more disappointing. But love the show. Can't wait to see what they plan for season two. Can't wait to see what happens next with these characters. Really loved it. It's great to see forward-thinking, progressive Superman content because I love the character. So, great show. Absolutely great show. That's basically the final word I have to say on it. So, that was our discussion about Superman and Lois Season 1. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music that you are hearing right now. I'd also like to thank our in-house artist Isaac for the artwork. Chris, thank you for joining for this discussion. It's been great to pour over this and dig it apart and all that stuff. It's been great to be back. If you enjoyed what you heard here, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any major podcasting app you can think of. If you are on Apple Podcasts listening on there, please do leave us a star rating and a comment. We'd really appreciate it. What's our favourite number, though? Five. Exactly. But less than five, tell us why. Just speak to us and let us know. If you want to talk to us about Superman and Lois, Superman, DC... Arrowverse, anything really. You can get us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. <laughs>